Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. 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 In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1363 to 1376. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1363. The Meek Shall Inherit, written by Crumb JD. When humanity encountered the possibility of nuclear war, we pulled back. Most species remember their first nuclear war like mankind remembers their renaissance, a period of rapid change and advancement. They're even sort of right, setting aside the fact that 90% of the species typically dies in that war. Anyways, it's not like mankind avoided the college. We just postponed it until the Krask dropped multi-stage fusion bombs on Earth from all. An unfortunate coincidence made the next 200 years very bad. The Krask can digest Earth proteins, and apparently we taste great to them. Ironically, it wasn't until mankind had been sold as chattel or taken as spoils of war by half a dozen other species and built populations outside the Krask Empire that we began to gain any influence on the galactic stage. Not that I felt influential as the Remick Ambassador, my master, leaned over me and roared, Your armor plates show a tinge of ultraviolet! Why has there been no progress? Its voice sounded like a rumble of a big machine, and one of its arm blades was raised and ready to sweep down on me. There are two responses to Remick threat displays. You can respond in kind, or you can crouch down and shoot yourself. Crouching down is a passive de-escalation body language. Had my master been dealing with another Vremic, it would have responded in kind and they would have argued for a while and maybe tried to kill one another. That's why most of my master's staff was composed of human slaves. I crouched. It was a real strain of my legs, but I do yoga specifically, so I won't fall on my butt in situations like this. The Krasik ambassador is a weak fool, my lord. It won't recognize the Vremic's superiority and demands concessions from his position of weakness. The ambassador would be soothed by my reference to weakness. Krasik are actually a racial slur. It means crutch and refers to the Krasik habit of augmenting their bodies with cybernetics. Madness, of course, my lord. It's war, then. The Vremic didn't say that like a human would. Its voice and the shifts in sound sensitive crystalline hairs on the top of its dorsal spine indicated... Happiness. Well, perhaps not happiness, but whatever emotion a student feels upon realizing that they know all the answers on a test that they'd been worrying about. I crouched just a little more deeply. Perhaps, Lord, but perhaps you can fool the Krasit. The ambassador tensed again. Declare a truce, then attack. You have no honor. No, no. I, I mean, you might get what you want by giving them a meaningless concession. You might then gain your goals without even attacking. There is a system that interests them. I held my breath, waited. I'm a soldier, and this is the battlefield on which I might die. Remick psychology is very poorly equipped to handle my suggestion. They can't help but see any encroachment of their territory as significant threat. Dealing with it via straightforward attack has a visceral appeal. Any other response feels very risky. As with humans, risk scares them. But unlike humans, they almost always respond to fear with aggression. 
I was hoping that I'd worked my way deeply enough into the ambassador's confidence that it would suppress that anger on my behalf. The room filled with the stink of Remick anger pheromones, and the ambassador's arm blade trembled above my head as the ambassador barely restrained the blow that would surely cut me in half. I got an inch lower even though it made my calves burn and my knees shake. We held like that for a minute, but the death blow didn't fall. Which system? Linda, a human slave to the Crescent Ambassador and my counterpart in the debate society, blew out of breath when I walked back into the conference room where we'd been meeting earlier. Dave, uh, I was starting to worry about you. Yeah, well, uh, you weren't wrong. I almost ate it. The debate society can't pull this kind of last-minute crap. Linda nodded. She was an older woman with steel-gray hair and stern features. Normally, she looked very composed. But today, her bun was starting to come loose and she slumped in a chair. Same here. Brass is a bunch of bastards. I'll buy you a beer after we wrap up. They have beer in this hellhole, right? Yeah, I cracked a smile. The Kresak and Vremek are practically camping here. But there were some uh, minor budget overruns in the construction phase of the slave dormitories. As I thought about it, my smile grew slightly less grim. Negotiations between the Kreset and Vremek were taking place on a blue-toyed body in a system that served as a very farthest outpost of the Vremek civilization. It was a miserable place. There was no sunlight to speak of, the gravity was uncomfortably low, and the surface temperature hovered around 40 Kelvin. It was only the complete undesirability of the real estate that had persuaded the Vremek to allow the Kreset into their space in the first place for negotiations. All the non-human troops and ambassadorial staff were sleeping in their warships on high alert, eating field rations, while they waited for the conflict that they considered a near certainty. Yet, humans had a bar. Actually, we had a bar, a gym, recreational facilities, and a reasonably comfortable barracks. We had these things because we'd arrived a month earlier than the Crescent and Remick in our slave transports and built the place like we built nearly everything in Crescent and Vremic society. Mighty warrior cultures don't turn out to make good architects. It's a different skill set. The same can be said about a lot of things. I sighed and I felt tension roll out of my shoulders. These bastards, Rust, are always bastards. That's how it works. But they couldn't have known a flare would take out the main Crescent cybernetic production facilities and send them scrambling for resources. I got you INK-47 system. That's in the right place. I nodded, then worked some controls in the mahogany conference table. A hologram of local space popped into being above its shiny surface. It was a cube depicting stars in territories of three civilizations. Crescent stars were blue, Remick were green, and Krask burned an unhappy red. My eyes lingered on a small star near the center of the Krask territory. Sol. I reached out and typed INK-47, flipping it from green to blue. Doing that smoothed out the protrusion from Bremic territory into Kresic space. More importantly, INK-47 was near the Kresk border. The Bremic had never been able to develop it because it was poorly suited to their biology and the logistics of the Empire. That was not true for the Kresic. Oh, nice, it said, admiration clear in her voice. 
They'll flow into that like water. She got that distant look that people get when they are consulting a heads-up display. No doubt she was reading about the system. Lots of rare earth as well, good for crescent implants. She shook her head a few more times and made a low humming sound of consideration and perhaps appreciation. I didn't get you anything nearly this nice. You may have just moved up the liberation timetable by, uh, years. She reached out and toggled the star over Vremic. She was right. It wasn't as nice as INK-47. It was in an area of space that could barely be considered Kresik to start with, and it was equally far out for the Vremic. However, holding up the system information, I could see that the Vremic would develop it faster than the Kresik had, and they'd like it better than INK-47. When they moved all the way into the big part of Kras' space, would be wrapped around the strong, hostile powers. That could only end one way. The Krask would go to war. They'd try to get some breathing room by either pushing back either Vremic or Kreset. Whichever one wasn't attacked would see Krask's weakness and move in. Linda and I hadn't arranged a peace treaty so much as a flanking maneuver. The Krask would be exterminated. Some humans would die too, but many would simply be taken prisoner. It was the least bad solution. Most races basically ignored us. We do our jobs, we make ourselves comfortable, manage our own, and even form our own organization so long as they're innocuous. Like a debating club. Obviously, if we rise up, they'll kill whatever planet we do it on. Billions lost, countless non-combatants dead. That's not warfare humanity has the stomach for. But what motivation would we have for a rebellion if we aren't being eaten? The empire the Krask had forced us to build for them after they had invaded Earth was going to fall far more rapidly than it had risen. I smiled, and this time I showed a lot of human teeth that most races didn't think much of. Linda and I finalized the paperwork with our respective masters and then went to get that drink. I was lying on my bed in my room in the human barracks when someone started hammering on my door. The pounding was so intense that my pulse jumped. The violence of it made me think that it was a Vremic rather than a fellow human. But the interruption proved to be Atkins, a young communications operator and a very junior member to the debate society. I ushered him into the room and had him sit on the only chair while I settled on the bed. It was an uncomfortable way to have a conversation with a subordinate. But all of the rooms in the barracks are cramped, somewhat below 500 square feet, the room minimum required to achieve ideal productivity in human servants. Larger, of course, than the cots the Vremet soldiers gets. But Vremet soldiers are better with withstanding privation. Atkins started to speak a couple times, but on both occasions he trailed off gasping for breath and shivering. I don't know if I should urge him on, or tell him to take his time that he needed. I sort of split the difference. What is it and what the hell did you do to yourself? Run! Remick tunnels! Too, too cold for you! Not much air! But, but shortest way to commun communicate! My mind instantly offered up disaster scenarios. War had broken out. That was most likely, and if so, non-combatants would need to scram. We wanted to live. There was also the chance that some idiot human had done something that was going to trigger reprisals. I stood, started to look around the room for anything I should grab before I evac. You intercepted something. What is it? No, 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 not intercepted. It, it, it's to us. 
the debate society. I stopped and gave Atkins a confused look. I hadn't worked with the kid before, but surely he wasn't under the impression that every debate society message was a big deal. No. If so, he'd be excited. He looked worried. Is it a new triad? Those violent idiots. Non-human. The message came from Hubwood of Krask Space. I sat back down on the bed without quite planning the movement. Hubwood of the Krask. I wasn't even sure of the name of the races in that direction. They'd never purchased or stolen human slaves, so the debate society had assumed that they had some other industrial base. Maybe. Thinnest of hopes. They weren't so bloodthirsty that two accountants debating a gap would eventually come to blows. It was more likely that they had some other race under their thumb. Could they have spies? Could they have realized that we mattered? It hardly seemed possible. But that was the problem. The debate society had gotten arrogant. I noticed Atkins was holding out a piece of paper. A cake, but it could be destroyed without leaving a digital trace. I took it and read, my eyes growing wide. To the Human Debate Society. Hello and joyous day to you. Many blessings upon your house and fertility to your loins. Your plans regarding the Krask have come to our attention. Your wisdom is unbounded. Our livers rejoice that you have been able to redress the unpleasant culinary particularities of the Krask, as well as the damage done to Earth's mantle over the Yellowstone supervolcano. Our humble fellowship would never willingly prove a stumbling block to you. However, we had seen some small role for the Krask in the design of the stars. Perhaps two races of gentle aspects might discuss the likely fate of the mighty, such that all may benefit. Sincerely, the Dentrosieri Janitorial Union. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1364 Story number two. For want of a rivet, a colony was formed. Written by Bond Rose. For want of a rivet, an engine was breached. For want of an engine, a ship was lost. For want of a ship, an advance was turned. For want of an advance, a planet was saved. For want of a planet, a siege was laid. This refrain is popular among humans because it highlights how they managed to take so many planets so quickly, and thus why they are a major force in the political landscape. It is common among species in the Republic that individuals are assigned jobs from birth. A drone groans crops, a soldier fights wars, a bureaucrat makes paperwork, a merchant sells goods, a lawyer robs you blind... Uh, sorry, um... Uh, still a bit bitter off, uh, off my last wife. Uh, the humans, though, they have a different take on things. Uh, among humans, individuals are free to change jobs at any time. A lawyer may become a bureaucrat, a merchant may become an artist, and, uh, most importantly, a soldier may become a farmer. For a long time, it was a common tactic that, if you couldn't crush your opponent in battle over a planet, to let them take the planet, then enclose the planet in a shield to starve them out. As warships are notoriously bad environments for drones, you block off offenses by third parties so that they can't claim your prize in a few decades, when the shields are due to be opened and you are sure the soldiers on the planet were all dead. When the humans entered the Republic, they started taking as many planets as they could and were laughed at while stretching their forces thin. 
that is. They were laughed at until the shields were opened decades later and immediately resealed because they still had active soldiers inside. The cycle of opening and resealing happened many times before force sieging the planet realized that it wasn't an issue of an unusually long-lived soldier cast, but a breeding population and started doing orbital bombardment. Once the bombardment started occurring, humanity took their opponents to court, arguing that by right of homesteaders, the attackers were taking illegal actions against planets that had been successfully settled by full-spectrum populations for several generations. Because humans can switch jobs, they were able to have large portions of their population trained both as soldiers and all of the necessary jobs for a new colony. All humans in their population can be low-rate breeders, so when trying, they can double their population once or twice before the next time the shield is lifted. Given several thousand soldiers landing on a planet and half a dozen shield cycles, and they'll have sufficient population as a low-speed breeder to claim homesteader rights. The basic premise runs like so. They have individuals from their population volunteer to be cross-trained as soldiers. Then, when they take a planet, they immediately start planting crops and building infrastructure so that they can outlast the siege. As the sieging force is fighting off any third parties, they don't have to worry about orbital defense except for the odd exploratory incursion every few decades. They keep their entire population on standby as soldiers, training up new generations to replace old ones. The population is required to keep up on their training, but they are also doing other jobs and having as many children as they can support. They fend off an attack whenever the shield is open, and after a few centuries... The planet is legally theirs. Your assignment for this week is to do a 20-page cost-benefit analysis on both the generalist and specialist methods of population employment in regards to settling planets. End of story. Story number one. Backwater, written by Hena. The air was dry. Everything was covered in dust. And every once in a while you could catch a strong whiff of crap probably wafting in from the fields on the outskirts of town. Prefab houses huddled together around the main roads, seeming to hold onto the barely maintained appearance with a vice-like grip. The people didn't trust you if you were new, and the concept of justice was applied rather loosely. All in all, it reminded me a bit of home, an amusing coincidence considering I would be calling this little backwater town home the foreseeable future. I pushed through the cheap prefab door of the local watering hole, letting out a fresh wave of cool air. As I entered the taproom, I looked down the hood of my worn leather coat and surveyed the inhabitants. I wasn't entirely surprised at what I found. Your usual collection of layabouts, a handful of farmers, and a small group of men who probably made a living preying on the hard work of others. I let a small grin drift onto my face, bearing a few teeth. I meandered over to the bar and planted myself in an empty seat before the barkeep wandered over. I'll be human, the barkeep was gruff, hulking brucker, seven feet of hard, leathery skin and muscle, complete with various shades of green. They could usually be found as guns for hire just about anywhere the galaxy. This one was bent with age and bore the scars of battles long past. I shrugged, 
and a fine film of dust that had collected on the road drifted from my shoulders. The hard stuff, if you've got it. Neat. Hard stuff generally refer to anything over 25% alcohol by volume, but you could buy anywhere up to 50% without a permit. Unless you happen to live in Hubert Spacer, we liked our hard stuff pretty damn hard. Of course, the likelihood of me finding the good stuff out here would be slim to none, and would be horribly overpriced. The barkeep presented me with a bottle as though it was a prized possession, and not booze. I had to fight back a laugh as the bottle presented to me was from an old distillery. Jack Daniels. That had been bought so many times that it was hard to keep track. Not exactly something I would drink neat, but I doubt they carry cola at ya, either. Still, it made me wonder how something like that managed to get all the way out here into the arse end of the Orion Arm. The barkeep poured me a hefty portion, and it went down easy enough. Can't complain, I suppose. I see you're enjoying the good stuff, spoke a sinuous voice from my right in barely intelligible common. I looked over to find a reddish-brown sleigh leaning against the bar. Damned snake people. If there's somewhere with organized crime, you can find a sleigh. They were generally the dexterous members of the organization, handling the quick and dirty type jobs involving breaking locks, cracking security codes, and things like that. I placed my hand on my thigh, a hair's breadth away from my handgun. I'm not racist, but you know, of course, wherever you can find a shifty-looking sleigh, you can find a... Heavy hand slapped onto the bar to my left, causing several glasses to tumble over. But they usually save the good stuff for important people, said the intimidating creature beside me. Well, he would have been intimidating if it weren't for the Xeno equivalent of a beer gut hang over the alien's belt. Judging by the stocky build and bad breath and beady eyes, this was a mon. And you could find one everywhere you could find a shifty-looking sly. LeBron to the sly's brain. Bipedal, heavy-set, they looked scary, but they had plenty of weaknesses. And filthy humans don't count as important out here, continued the snake. I might not be racist, but it became more common the further down the arm you traveled. Generally, folk didn't like humans too much. Not a problem unless they made it a problem, usually. The pair seemed eager to make it a problem, though. Want me to spit it back up, then? I asked, adding a bit of backwater drawl to my common. Thank you, pale skin, grumbled the mon. Only if you buy me another drink, Trubs. And uh, who do you think you are? the snake said, that you can talk to us that way. I merely gestured for the bartender to pour another drink. The mon to my right roared and began to take a swing at me. Now, they're big, stocky creatures that throw around a lot of weight. Weight that needs to be supported on two legs. So when I drew my handgun, possibly an understatement, and blew one thick leg apart at the kneecap, the mon dropped like a sack of bricks. With my left hand still on the bar, I gripped my glass and chucked it blindly to my right. I was rewarded with a meaty smack, followed shortly by breaking glass. 
I holstered my handgun, stood up, and broke my cheap barstool over the slave's head. I towered over the fallen snake and calmly pulled aside my coat with one hand, then tapped the fancy hologram that served as a badge. I'm your new sheriff, Scaly. Get used to it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1365 516 Written by Etnox Vector Est We never realized our mistake until the war was over. General Abraxas's deep, sonorous buzz cut through the chatter in the room, all side conversations ending abruptly as he started his speech. Gathered before him were the political leaders of the Corvan people, all demanding an explanation as to what had gone so disastrously wrong. The loss of the war with the Terrans was still a point of major confusion with most of the citizens of the Empire. The campaign had been proceeding as expected, but suddenly... The tides turned. In less than two months, the Corvan Empire went from being on even footing with the Terrans to desperately trying to survive. I am sure many of you are wondering how such a thing has happened. A surrender, much less a total surrender, has never occurred once in our great history. I know that such a thing seems unthinkable, but I assure you that we had no other choice. The change occurred suddenly. The tactics of the Terrans became uh, brutal. Instead of the typical ship-to-ship combat, the Terrans began to attack our ships physically. Gesturing to the screen, one of the new Terran ships appeared. It was an ugly, ungainly-looking thing, lacking the clean curves and pleasing design of the Corvin cruisers. The ship looked like a floating lump of raw steel, heavy plating prominent. They no longer even tried to shoot at us or perform tactical maneuvers. They simply found one of our ships, sent course, and rammed directly into it. Once engaged, fighters were then poured into our ships and, uh, well, um, perhaps that's better to show you. The screen behind the general changed, showing a security feed from within the Corvin battleship. The feed started out as nothing but static and distorted shapes but soon came into focus. Apparently, the Terran ship had just crashed into theirs, and when the playback began. The rough-looking front of the intruding ship opened quickly, and a swarm of Terran fighters poured in. There was little in the way of strategy or coordination in their attack. Instead, the human fighters came screaming toward their foes in an unmistakable rage, chanting something in their brutish language. They were armed with melee weapons only, seemingly not content to fight at range. Corvin rivals fired into them quickly, but little effect. The Terrans seemed to have armored themselves similarly to their ships. As a result, they were not fast or elegant. They were, however, shockingly deadly, using axes, hammers, swords, and, at times, simply their fists. The Terran invaders rushed upon the Corvin soldiers, sweeping over them like a tide. The brutality of the assault was terrifying to behold. Corvin soldiers were not simply killed. No, they were dismembered, pulverized, ripped apart bodily. The hate displayed by the Terran warriors was nearly tangible, their screams of rage overwhelming the cries of pain of their victims. 
the scene shifted to various cameras showing the horde of Terrans flow through the ships. They scoured every inch, leaving no one alive. They asked for no surrender, made no demands. They simply killed every Corbin they found with extreme prejudice. During the entire assault, the strange chant never seemed to stop. The silence in the room after the security feed ended hung heavy over the crowd. Any lingering traces of anger or disbelief were gone. The politicians, already not used to the terrors of war, were stunned almost senseless by the extreme violence before them. This was typical of every assault led by the Terrans. They never once tried to communicate in any way. As soon as they saw one of our ships, they attacked. They seemed unstoppable. Their armor, though impressive, was not unvoidable. But even the shots that hit seemed to have little effect. If an attack was not immediately fatal, they fought on. In deference to the proprietary of this gathering, I have shown you one of the less brutal assaults. But there are examples of Terrans missing limbs, or even with holes through their torsos, still fighting, still killing. And I'm sure many of you are wondering what they were chanting. We wondered that as well, hoping that translating it would give us some insight into what had changed. But after translating the words, we were none the wiser. The chant translates to simply 516. The screen changed again, showing a series of what appeared to be barren asteroids. But upon closer inspection, some metallic ruins could be seen amongst the rocky terrain. These are what are left of our advanced bases and manufacturing facilities. Again, the human's destruction seems to know no bounds. They destroyed our outposts, our factories, and our hangars. Normally, this would be understandable. We were in a war, after all, and destroying the enemy's production capabilities is a standard tactic. But the Terrans went above and beyond the norm. After destroying the facility, they launched bombardments of all sorts, coating the planets in radiation. Even worse, they left behind viruses that are fatal to our kind. To even make these planets habitable again would take the work of centuries. Using them as military installations would take years more. They thus destroyed not only our soldiers, but our ability to make war. General Labraxas pauses for a moment. Looking down. He is obviously shaking. Those who know him find the display even more appalling than the recorded assault from earlier. To see the proud general appear so broken was hard to believe. Worst of all, they showed us that none of us were safe. None of us. In war, those who lead the battle are often out of the way of direct danger. As such, we had thought ourselves to be invulnerable. We learned that we were not. The general points at a new image on the screen, now showing an odd black coffin-shaped device. What you see is the most diabolical of the Terran's weapons. Near the end of the war, twelve of these devices landed across our home world. They were simply too small and too shielded to be seen by our senses. And anything that small that could do true damage to our planet, such as a nuclear or antimatter warheads, would have been detected. 
These, however, carried a much more dangerous payload. More security footage plays, showing one of the strange devices come screaming through the atmosphere. It slowed itself enough not to destroy itself on landing, coming to a skidding halt in front of a large government building. The lid popped off the device, launched several feet into the air. A humanoid shape scrambled quickly from inside it and began running towards the doors of the building. It was hard to see through the debris still hanging in the air from the coffin's arrival, but it looked like a more advanced version of the protective suits worn by the human warriors in the previous recording. The human was simply unstoppable. It ran through the doors of the building as if they weren't there, not breaking stride as it headed towards its goal. The few guards who were able to react had no effect on slowing it. The shots from their guns simply bounced or were absorbed. Those who tried physically stopping this thing were thrown aside as easily as the doors had been. The feet continued, showing the Terran heading towards one specific office. Ran through the door, not wasting time to open it. The feed abruptly paused at that point. You likely cannot read the plaque beside the door, but this is... Uh, was the office of Admiral Jurex. Again, for the sake of common decency, I have stopped the footage at this point. However, the human... Uh, it... Um, it did not stop. By the time security forces caught up, the Admiral was long since dead. The Terran, however, was still attacking the corpse. The Admiral's head was... Uh, gone. Crushed into nothingness by the Terran's gauntlets. It never stopped punching the area where the Jurex's head had been, screaming a sentence over and over. It ignored any of our forces as they tried desperately to pull it off the Admiral. In the end, security simply hammered the creature to death with the butts of their rifles. Throughout the twenty minutes it took to kill it, it never stopped savaging the corpse, nor did it cease screaming that one phrase again. We translated the phrase, but it helped us little. The mad human simply repeated, Her name was Sarah! At this point, the end of the war was a foregone conclusion. They could kill our soldiers at will, and in such terrifying fashion that our remaining soldiers lost all morale. They could remove our ability to make war and take those facilities from us entirely. And they had shown us that none of us, no matter how highly placed, were safe. They had the skill and the technology to fight us, yes, but that did not seal their victory. It was their will. They had turned the entirety of their very beings to our destruction. Thus, when they asked for our surrender, it was never truly a choice. Our only other option was complete and utter annihilation. It was at this point that we finally found out what had changed the entire war. When the Terrans demanded surrender, they cited our destruction of a small outpost as the reason for their rage. We thought little of it at the time. It was a location holding their young. We had simply assumed that their young were much like ours. Numerous, quickly produced, and basically nameless until they reached maturity. The humans apparently think differently. In destroying this small settlement of 516 humans, the young and their caretakers, we had awoken a beast more terrifying than any in our nightmares. This 
was the end of the human transmission. It should explain rather clearly why we surrendered. He turns to look up at the screen, but the rest of the audience, one of the Terrans appeared on screen. Even though its features were utterly alien to the Corvins gathered there, the unfettered rage and contempt were clear. They demanded their surrender, that they cease all military production for their indeterminate future and allow themselves to be invaded by the humans. Its last line caused even the stoutest of bugs to tremble as it spoke through clenched teeth. If you ever touch our children again, we will return. And next time, we will not be so merciful. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1366 The best crewman I ever had, written by Stone Dawn's Beatles. A digitized voice woke Tulu from each drunken sleep with an indiscreet boatswain's whistle. Crewman 19, Tulu, you are required in the captain's quarters. Gee, thanks, he grumbled, rubbing his throbbing head and swinging his four legs onto the cold metal floor. He tumbled out the door with just one arm in his jacket and stumbled down the red-lit corridor. She woke me up for third watch, after all I did. The loudspeaker in the wall crackled, Grumman 19 Tulu, you are required in the captain's quarters, I know. Would you shut up, you piece of junk? He finally reached the hatch a few moments later and rasped his right claw against it a couple times, yawning lazily. The hatch slid open with a pneumatic hiss and he stepped through. The light was on in the captain's bedroom, illuminating a small rectangular portion of the darkened office. He could just barely spot her shadowed form sitting in the chair, turned around to face a false window, and the stars fleeting past. You wanted to see me, Captain? You're a decent pilot, maybe even a good one, after you saved our heights yesterday. Who taught you those maneuvers? Well, he paused her. I'm an O-Academy kid, he shrugged. I already knew that. Who taught you those maneuvers? Got it off smugglers, asteroid miners, anyone who picks up the sticks. Pirates, some. Captain turned around and switched on the lights. He shielded his eyes from the sudden flash and waited for them to adjust. At last, he could see her long face staring at him down, looking him over, judging him. Well, I won't delve any further into that, she decided. I suppose that I never gave you my gratitude for flying us out of that Golgol warp trap. After all that celebration afterwards, he replied, smiling at the memory of loud music and strong liquor. I'm happy to be of service. She jabbed a brawny finger at him. Don't let it get to your head, Tulu. This isn't your shoddy minor pod, your slimy pirate skiff, your slippery drug runner. This is an exploratory vessel of the Grand Galactic Fleet. I let them drink to keep the morale up. Yes, ma'am, he answered, tightening his lips. And you're going to need to be more prompt the next time I send for you. Stars knows we'll be needing your skills when we finally penetrate Grolgar's space, let alone those warp traps in Disputed Zone. And I don't want you snoring in your bunk when that happens. Yes, ma'am, is that all? He prepared to turn back towards the hatch. She gave the question some thought. No, have a seat. I want to tell you something. The story... All right, he said tiredly, sliding into the chair beside the wall, but his ear holes perked up at her next question. Who do you think was the best crewman I ever had? Well, he chuckled, uh, <laughs> I'd rather not say. Out with it, your honest answer. Who? I'm, I'm tempted to say me, 
He grinned. And you'd be dead wrong, he frowned. The best crewman I ever had used to take that pilot seat of yours, but it wasn't his piloting that made him the best. It was his sacrifice. It was less the Captain Jeromina, your presence is requested on the bridge, and more the ambient roar of warp engines suddenly dying that awoke her from her sleep. So you'd just given herself a few hours nap while the crew was executing a warp maneuver to the next planet in this uncharted system to survey, and now something had gone terribly wrong. She could feel it in her flesh and bones, the survival instinct kicking in. After 23 years with the fleet, the instinct had been honed, perfected. It was never wrong. By the time she left the quarters, she was already buttoning the cuffs of her jacket. Her fears were confirmed when she opened the hatch to the bridge, greeting her with alarms ringing and light panels flashing emergency red. Captain on deck! The security officer belched. The crew leapt from their stations, every flavor of sapiens from all corners of the galaxy, each saluting her with whatever appendage they had, except for the one at the pilot's chair, who was furiously tapping on his touch display. What's wrong, pilot? she asked, brushing off the laps in the officer's etiquette as she took her commander's chair. Captain, uh, the warp engines are not engaging. And the almost hairless creature hurriedly replied, tapping with his tiny, dexterous pink fingers. Why aren't they engaging, Nathaniel? She always had trouble sounding out his strange name. They're, um... They're being inhibited by something. Something's restraining. Captain! Sensors! A tentacled ensign cried. What do you have? She tersely answered. Grogar attacked craft directly behind us, 20 kilometers at 60 degrees down. Our intelligence says the craft is too small to power a warp trap, shouted the reptilian lieutenant. Is our intelligence faulty? No, ma'am, the pilot interjected. It isn't. That ship, uh, it isn't preventing us from leaving. What is then? Captain, the sensor officer gasped. What is it? What sensors? There's a... A Kolka cruiser coming over the horizon. Stars above, she muttered to herself. Boatswain, sound general carters. Weapons, prepare firing solution for the attack craft. It was too late. Missiles inbound, announced the frightened sensors officer. Launch decoys, pilot, all stop. Jeromina barked. Aye, aye. They watched on in the main display as two chemical plumes barreled towards them within visual range. At the very last moment, they arced away, chasing the decoys instead. Once they had danced away, her voice quivered with emotion as she yelled, Pilot, get us out of here! Aye, aye, impulsed to fall, he answered far more coolly. They felt the sudden acceleration push them into their chairs as he burned for a higher orbit. More missiles inbound, launch decoys, missiles reacquired 10 kilometers out and closing, launch again, no fact. Hold on! The pilot shouted as he switched instantly to retrograde thrusters, throwing them forward into their harnesses as the ship lurched backwards for a lower orbit. Why would he bother? she wondered. The missiles cannot run us, outturn us. The only hope is the decoys. She looked around at her crew. On their strange and alien faces, they all shared a common emotion. Fear for their lives. He's trying to reassure them, she realized. She ordered another round of decoys. The missiles finally disengaged, but there were more plumes not far behind. Too many plumes. Is this it? Twenty-three years, three commands. I can't even take comfort in my death. 
The death of my crew. They, they can't use it for anything. They won't push the Galgal. A war with them would be a suicide for the Federation. Everyone knows they have better tech, the better ships, the better weapons. She was interrupted by Freefall. For a moment, stretched into eternity. Her restraints reeled back into her seat. But the whole ship had lurched with her. Her data panels froze up. New alarms blared across the main display. The alert read, Atmosphere breach detected. Bear hit! Masks on, she commanded, reaching into the seat pocket and retrieving an oxygen mask that she placed over her face. Her heavy breathing, almost panting, began to fuck up the glass. She looked down over her freezing and flickering data panel, banged it with her fist a few times, and then slid a pudgy finger across the report section. The damage report lit the entire warp section black, and the rest of the ship was a hodgepodge of red and orange Captain, the missiles are arcing away. They're not going after our decoys. They're just self-detonating, crackled the sensors officer in her ear. Why would they do that? Asked the crewman's voice from the other ear. Because they want to capture us. Study us, she concluded. We've been disabled. No crew comes back from a Galgar boarding. Our only chance now is to escape. She opened her communications panel. Engineering, bridge, I need a systems report. Systems aren't your problem, ma'am. Came the frantic reply. We've got five minutes stops before we blow. Blow? Uncontrolled detonation. Engine three's busted of its cooling frame and overheating. We can't get in there and use the manual shutdown. The whole thing's practically melting. Once it hits 2,000 degrees, those engines will go critical. Taking us with them. Captain? Ma'am? Engineering shouted through the speaker, exasperated. We ought to abandon ship. We'll be annihilated if we don't go now. There'll be no talk of abandoning ship, she barked. Stand by your station and await further orders. But, ma'am, she cut the channel before he could finish and rubbed her temples with a sigh. Well, if we're gonna die, we could take the Galgar with us. Senses, how far is the Galgar attack craft from our position, she asked. Twenty kilometers, ma'am, and getting closer. How large of an explosion would a triple warp engine detonation be? Ma'am, you heard me. You can't... You don't think... I do. Now, Lieutenant, how large of an explosion would it be? 63 cubic kilometers. Enough to take them with us. The bridge officer admitted. She sat back in her chair, contemplative. Now was the time for a heroic speech. Something to fill every sapient of the ship with pride as they went to their deaths. She had almost slipped a finger over the intercom button before she was interrupted by the pilot, unbuckled from his harness and looming over her. There's no need for that, Captain, he said without emotion. We're going to die in a tunnel. We may as well take the Galgar with us and die as heroes, she reassured him. Take your seat, we aren't, but makes you so sure. Call it instinct, he smiled. Instinct? He stepped over to the hatch. He looked at the security officer. Open it for me. I'm going to engineering. What are you doing, Natanel? Asked the captain. He turned to face the whole bridge. I'm willing to bet it takes the Grolgar a lot of power to run those warp traps on that cruiser. Not nearly as much as a warp travel, but a good fraction. They've got pretty good senses too, because they wouldn't have it on if they didn't know that we were already here. They know we're crippled with our senses. They don't know that we're going to blow, but they're pretty sure that we aren't warping anywhere soon. 
under any normal circumstances, that would be true. But they didn't count on me. Open the hatch. The security officer looked anxiously over at the captain for an answer. She nodded cautiously. He regretfully ran a claw over his panel, and the hatch hissed open. The corridor, red with emergency lighting, sparked and groaned with twisting, shearing metal. He walked with purpose down the hall. They watched him pass through the next bulkhead, then found him on the video monitors and followed his progress from there. He made it to engineering, pausing a moment to take in the desolate scene, the wreckage, and debris, the wounded crewmates around him, and a few dead ones. He was stopped by the chief of engineering at the hatch to the warp engines. You can't go in there, human. You have any idea how hot it is in there? It'll melt your skin off. You'll die. We're all going to die. I'll just die sooner, he curtly replied. The chief of engineering backed away, more afraid of him than the heat. He opened the hatch and stared for a moment into the bright, orange oven, arm raised over his forehead, preparing himself. And he turned away, looking instead straight into their monitor, his eyes looking back into theirs on the bridge. Listen closely. When I throw the manual shut down, power up engines one and two, the course is already plotted. Once you're away from the growl car, you can plot a new course for the closest outpost. He looked back through the hatch and then back at them. Good luck. Then he stepped into the pyre. They could barely make him out in the smoke on the last working monitor. His pants around his ankles had caught fire. His boots were dribbling melted fabric onto the floor. He had his arms raised around his face, futilely shielding it from the blast furnace around him. He stumbled through the dark haze, bumping into equipment and scorching himself on it. He grew slower and slower. The closer and closer he got to engine three, they could see the heat radiating off it from the video monitor. The cylindrical core had fallen haphazardly out of its bent frame and rested on the floor in flames. On its spine was Emmanuel's shutdown. He stopped warily and accidentally opened his eyes. They heard his scream as his coronas burned off. He was blinded, but somehow he did not collapse. He did not give up. He felt around, jacket over his hands with a core. The jacket burst into flames as soon as he touched the room. It didn't matter to him. He clambered on top in a hurry, almost slipping off in a frightful moment before regaining his balance. He was crawling on his hands and knees, now slower than a snail, burdened by unseen crushing weight of pain. They could see his white teeth. He wasn't grinning. He was grinding them together and biting his lip to stem the shock to his system. At last, he made it to the manual shutdown. A massive lever which had to be lifted and flipped to shut down the engine. It was as large as his torso and took a tool to do. Many averted their gaze. He had no chance already so weakened by the heat to flip that switch. But they could hear, amongst the crackling flames, a grunt and a groan. A tremendous, bellowing roar erupted from within him. A fire swept his body as he lifted the switch with titanic effort into the air, 
and let it fall with gravity into place. The engine stopped glowing blue. Soon enough, on the captain's date panel, the light for engine three went out. The bridge cheered like animals. The sensors officer took the pilot's seat and selected engines one and two, just as the Grogor craft had crossed within two kilometers of their dying ship. They slipped into warp and to a planet at the far side of the system. The video monitor had burned up in the fire. The transmission was only static now. The cheers died, replaced with a somber troll. Some teared up. The captain dropped into the cushion of a chair and prayed for the first time in 23 years for the human that had saved her life, all of their lives. That's the closest friendly outpost, she asked, eyes still closed. Starbase 1916A, 46.4 light years. Can we make it that far? She opened the link to the engineering again. That's pushing it. I can give you one more jump within, say, 20 light years. We'll still need to extinguish those fires, the chief answered. All right. Anything closer? Let's see. Uh, I've got a reported smuggler's den in 1902C, 19.8 light years, said the intelligence officer. Smugglers? Well, I suppose they're better than nothing. Plot of course. Aye, aye, ma'am. Yep, he was right, she thought, as the warp engines roared to life. They may have better tech, better ships, better weapons, but they certainly don't have a braver crew. I've never even heard of anyone that crazy, Tlu exclaimed, or a human. Not many have. They aren't even part of the Federation. They're kept in a nature reserve, unless they're unfortunate enough to be abducted by smugglers or pirates or worse, the captain muttered. Well, maybe those smugglers helped you out, Tulu argued. After all, he saved your lives. We could use about a hundred of them. He joked like him. You have his spirit, Tulu. It's not just me saying that. When the crew toasted you, I could see it in their eyes. They're toasting him too, wherever the stars put him. You really think so, that I could be as brave as him? I know so. I'll go get some steep. You're taking first watch tomorrow. Aye, aye, ma'am. He saluted with pride. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1367. A White Lie, written by Yoshi Man. Your daughter was the hero. Jiro could feel the warm tears of the shocked father splatter across his dress uniform. The midnight blue fabric elegantly deflecting every grief-stricken tear only to land against the metallic silver lining of the uniform. There were no words from the father, not even a faint cry or gasp, only a tightened grasp from Jiro's dress uniform as tears kept pouring from the paralyzed father. In that, they were the same. Jiro was paralyzed through inaction, not knowing how to express his emotions to the chitinous giant in front of him. It just left the two of them in a mutual understanding. One not knowing how to grieve, and one not knowing how to comfort. It was the best situation Jiro could have hoped for. Which left his companion to handle the weeping mother. The more reactive of the couple. Yet Thomas always had a way of handling such nuanced issues. 
always knowing the intricacies of people's emotions and state of mind. I never thought it would be her, the mother wailed in a tear-stricken voice. I told her, oh my god, I told her that she should have stayed out of the military, that she should have just gone anywhere else but there. Thomas placed a hand onto the mother, softly wiping her tears with the other hand. If it were not for your daughter's action, neither I nor dozens of other people would be here today, he said comfortingly, his every word carefully spun to convey his heartfelt sympathy. Yet, the more he talked, the more Jiro's stomach turned and twisted in frustration, in knowledge that Thomas knew exactly what he was doing. Have pride in your daughter's actions, Thomas compassionately exclaimed, glancing from the mother to the father with a sympathetic stare that Jiro could never imitate. She was one of the most selfless soldiers that I have ever known, and it was an honor to serve beside her from start to end. Thomas took the mother's shaking hand, silently slipping a platinum-covered medal onto her lilac-colored skin. Knowing Vitra, I know she wouldn't have wanted you two to weep over her death, but rather smile in honor of the daughter you raised. There was an unrivaled warmth in Thomas's voice, radiating a smooth yet charismatic charm that could calm a maddened beast. Yet, it only sought to hide the deceit in his words. Jiro wanted to speak, wanted to tell the truth, yet he knew that his resolute silence was better for them all. He never really had a way with words. That much was known to him. The eyes of the mother widened as she brought up the platinum core, its chromatic luminescence bringing a warmth across the couple's faces as they both put their hands on it, a remembrance of their lost daughter. There had been only one member of their squad who had been awarded such a distinguished medal, and that person was standing right beside him. Thomas nudged Jiro's arms, a sign and request that they finish this up. In turn, he handed Thomas the jet black urn that he had kept to his side, laced with thin streaks of gold layered in form of the Commonwealth flag that had the name of Vitra Valtrova engraved on it. There were no words as Thomas soundlessly handed off the urn to the couple, who only spilt more tears as they hung onto the last vestiges of their daughter. May the entangler bless you well. Thomas took a step back and gave one final salute, his face stiffening against the shrapnel wounds that covered his face in a final show of respect for Vitra and her family. Jiro followed suit, taking a step away from the anguished couple to give the same respect. Yet he was only met with a sympathetic stare by the couple. It was only when Thomas patted him on the shoulder did the realization strike him. It was an odd sensation to move your arm only for you to see nothing to come forward, where once two muscled chitin-covered limbs would have arisen to send off the grieving couple. Only two empty sockets of his uniform came to bear. The couple gave one last nod to the duo as they slowly made their way out of the apartment flat, giving one last thank you as they closed the door. That just left them in the hallway where a dozen other residents stood idly by, originally listening to the cries and commotion, now simply gazing at the duo as they silently made their way out of the apartment complex.
After they got back to the spinner, there was no talking, only a mournful silence for those who had passed. Yet there was a burning sensation in Jiro's heart, one that told him that now was the time to speak out against the wrong that he had just let happen. It was only when they were stuck dead in traffic that he broke this lull in the silence. You need to stop doing that. Doing what? Thomas asked. He pointed towards the image crudely taped behind the steering wheel, the name Pullover Squad inscribed at the bottom of the picture, where sixteen men and women stood proudly of all different species, all of them thinking that they were invincible. Lying! There was another moment of silence between the two of them. He knew that Thomas had heard him and had willingly ignored him, so he pushed forwards. You and I both saw what happened to her. Jiro continued with a cold accent of frustration. She didn't even get out of the trench by the time the shell had hit. Jiro. Selfless, heroic, honorable. Thomas, if they ever look up the body cam footage, they'll break into two. Souls below the moment they realized that she was never awarded a platinum core. That it was all just a lie. I mentally cannot imagine the turmoil that they would fall into. Even as Jiro kept on trying to elaborate on all the false claims and lies, Thomas kept on ignoring him, merely locking eyes forward as the posture slowly faltered against the seat. Jiro, look. She cried for them, Thomas. He could see the memory play out in visceral detail. The desperate screams as she tried to stop her entrails from leaking out. His futile attempts to comfort her as she scrambled to cauterize the wounds under the hail of gunfire and shrapnel. Even as I tried to stem the bleeding, she couldn't stop screaming for them, crying out for her mother and father, regretting everything. Jiro felt his voice envelop in a mix of sorrow and grievance, even as he tried to suppress his emotions. She didn't die a hero, Thomas. She didn't save anyone. She just kept on crying for them. Damn it! I fucking know! Thomas yelled as he smashed his fists against the steering wheel. Jiro could hear the stricken strain in his voice. I... I fucking know. Thomas's face was shrouded in a veil of anger and anguish. His airy muscle tensed. Shining twinkles of teardrops started to emerge from the horizon of the fragmentation-dashed eyes. Jiro cursed himself for every tear that started to pour from his sparkling brown eyes. He knew that he had crossed that invisible line most aliens always had. Having spent so much time learning how to be sympathetic, it was a scornful reminder that he still had so much to learn about being empathetic. It really was a pain to think logically when life was so illogical. Jiro was prepared for a rapturous outburst, a retaliation for his words. Yet, the longer he waited, the more he realized that Thomas wasn't angry at him. Bitra was one of the most arrogant, selfish little shits that I'd ever known. Thomas started to mumble, sniffling up the tears and mucus that had appeared on his face. But she was our friend, damn it. And now she's gone, and the dead can't fucking speak. Jira thought back to all of their memories before that fateful battle. The chucks, the banter... Everything that added volume to the kinship they all shared with one another. It turned my heart when I smiled at them. It really did. All of the pretentious bullcrap I fecking spewed. It's sweet lies. The fake smile. 
Everything. I knew what I was doing. I did it twice before, with Contra and Equa, something you evidently noticed. All the lies had the seat I was peddling. There was a faint chuckle as Thomas started opening widely as the cityscape above, tears still passing across his charcoal skin. Vitra would have called me out at first sight of my smile. She could always see past my poker face and all the half-truths, but this... This is her parents we're talking to, not her. The people who spent years nurturing their daughter, watching her first step until she waved them goodbye to head off to wherever she went before she ended up in the army. He turned to look at Jira, his voice still carrying a tear-soaked cadence. And now their daughter's dead. An urn to her legacy is the last thing they will ever have or see of her. He took in a deep breath as Jiro just somberly listened to his outpouring. I know it's hard to grasp onto emotions of it all, but they were dying inside when I was comforting them. I... I could just tell. Their faces kept crying out to be told that it wasn't all for nothing. That their daughter's life somehow went on to do something greater than any of them could have achieved. Does that justify blatantly lying to them? He tried to voice the question as best he could, trying not to worsen the streaks of tears on his friend's face. Jiro, people don't like the truth. It's cold, ruthless, and uncaring, Thomas said, a sense of guilt spilling in the way he turned to gaze at the taped image. Yet people only know what they're told. So in a way, Mao lies become their truth because they won't know anything else. To say it straight, what we say about Vitra now would be how people remember her. There was another interlude of silence between the two. Only the ambient hum of the spinner's repulses left filling the emptiness. It was only after Jiro had put thought into everything that Thomas had said did he reignite the conversation. Would it not have been better if we just told them that the daughter was always thinking of them, that Vitra thought of them even in her final moments of life? Thomas let out a deep sigh as he slouched his head further against the seat. No, that would have been too much for them, he said in a sobering tone. Vitra never really talked about her parents, so maybe she had a falling out with them. Maybe they'd ever got on with the best of terms. I tried talking to some of the others about it, but it turned up nothing new, so uh, it's just better to play it safe. After another pensive moment of thought, Thomas's eyes lit up. You know what? Maybe one day, Jiro. Maybe one day. But for now, Vitra's memory lives through our words. So it's up to us to do right by her. I still don't like it, Jiro said. To lies to incur a debt on the truth. I fear that all of this may come tumbling down, just like it did on Ukar. Thomas seemed conflicted at his wording, turning his eyes back to the wider cityscape. If you... Uh, if you died back there, just like Vitra did, nothing honorable or remarkable about your actions, how would you want the kids back in the orphanage to remember you? The question bowed like a rugged piece of shrapnel penetrating his chest. How would you want Chen to see you? Or to Papa? People who were our family. Wouldn't you want them to see you as a hero? 
Jiro was locked in his thoughts. His mind raced through all the logical possibilities and every desired outcome, only for it all to come undone. But Thomas placed a hand on his shoulder. I know you take a lot of time to think about such things, but for me, I would want to be a symbol for them. Have them think of my name and think of all the great things I'd done. A legacy to aspire to and a story worth telling. A legacy to aspire to, he pondered the phrase. To leave a trail of actions that would agree greater than his individual sum and in a way transcend the totality of death. Like a book living on even as the author has long since passed. At the end... It all came down to how the person was remembered, just like what Thomas was trying to accomplish. It was only then that he realized that there were tears trickling down his chitinous frame, not his, but rather Thomas's. He was still faintly crying, tears still trickling off his face as he regained posture in his face, tears that somehow ended up a jira. Yet every tear that splattered bled into his uniform. He didn't know why. The uniform was meant to be hydrophobic, yet the spots of the fallen teardrops laid across the pristine blue fabric. Us humans have a thing called a white lie, Thomas stated. It's uh, like a lie, but um, it's really not. It is still a lie, yes, it still is, Thomas chuckled, wiping off the remaining trickles of tears from his face. But these white lies don't hurt people. They can comfort them, protect them. It's just how you use them. So your lies were white lies, meant to comfort and protect the grieving. Perfectly said, bud. If only Vitra could see you finally understanding basic emotional concepts. Jiro smiled at the invention. Vitra would have choked on and on how he was cold and motionless giant. Usually... He would get annoyed at such a comment. Yet now, he found it as a fond memory. If only she could. The silence resumed for the remainder of their journey until Thomas once again tapped him on his shoulder. We're here. Jiro looked out of the spinner. They were right beside one of the massive domed civic complexes that made up the old colonial part of the city. The rather lavish architecture and clothing adorned by the passerbyers already told him that they were about to meet Io's family. He turned to see Thomas preparing himself for the inevitable, making sure that all his tears had been thoroughly wiped and that he looked presentable as possible. How many more lies must we tell? Jiro asked. He already knew the answer. They still had three more urns to deliver. Three families who would collapse in anguish as they realized that the children were no longer amongst the living. Thomas patted Jira on the back. Let me do the white lies. Just look pretty and comfort them. As the two of them got out, they could already feel the eyes of the passing bystanders lock onto them. They all knew what it meant. They dressed uniforms with that of privates not officers, which meant only one thing to whoever they were meeting. Yet Jiro's eyes suddenly locked onto one pair, an elegantly dressed pair of Wekka holding a single bag of groceries, a pair that now stood paralyzed to a muscle as they stared at the approaching uniformed duo. 
It was as if the spirits had concocted against him and Thomas to meet Io's parents at all places. Yet he and Thomas marched forward, maintaining a stoic appearance as every passerby seemed to freeze and look at them. He could see the shock and panic sweep their faces, a muted thud coming from the dropped bag of groceries. He could feel the crowd suddenly lock eyes at the urn beside Jiro's uniform, sudden gasps and murmurs erupting from the rapid formation of bystanders. Just look pretty and comfort them. As they walked closer, the realization only deepened in the couple's faces. The twinkle of tears started to form before they had even spoken to them. Let me do the white lies. Thomas, in a stoic, soothing voice, began, Ma'am and sir, just one more white lie, he told himself. The tears started to pour out of the couple's eyes. Just one more white lie. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1368 The Long Road Home, written by Magic Rectangle Isaac Winter toiled late into the night. He was running out of money, and so he was running out of time. He'd sunk every last dollar into this project. The money from selling the tech starter. The money from selling his house and cars. His savings. The money he'd pulled out of the retirement account, accepting the tax hit. Even the money from, uh, the inheritance and insurance. It was five years now since the accident. So the machine had to work. It had to. He'd set everything up in an old warehouse he'd gotten for cheap. He slept in the office and worked the rest of the time. The office was a mess, but the workplace he kept clean. A mess was an accident waiting to happen, and he couldn't afford any setbacks. Now or never, he mused aloud. A few taps on the keyboard, and the test run 117 began. It would have been dramatic if the lights dimmed or the light bulbs exploded as the machine powered up. But Isaac knew how to build his equipment properly. Huge banks of capacitors stored up the necessary charge without overtaxing the warehouse's electrical system. The only indicators that something was happening was the buzz of the transformer and the progress bar on the monitor. The necessary charge built up. The hiss-snap of the cooling systems on the superconducting coils indicated that the process was starting. Inside the chamber, the probe, a glorified camera on a stick, was ready. If the event horizon formed this time, the probe would be pushed through on his signal. Finally, perhaps gratifyingly, the lights did flicker. Isaac barely noticed. He was more concerned by the fact that the camera inside the chamber had gone offline. His instruments indicated the fault was caused by an alarmingly large electromagnetic pulse. Fortunately, all of the key systems were well shielded, as far as the computer was concerned. The trial was still proceeding, but he couldn't see it. That just wouldn't do. Isaac had built a heavy-duty plexiglass window into the side of the chamber. All he needed to do was head down to have a look. He carefully checked his person for any metal. He didn't expect to find any. He always checked at the start of each trial, but the superconducting coils could make magnetic fields strong enough to sever a finger if you were wearing a ring. So best to be sure. Satisfied, he made his way to the test chamber, peering through the window. There was a shiny silver orb, 
At first glance, it could have been mistaken for liquid metal. But it wasn't. It wasn't even matter. While the event horizon of the black hole drinks in all light, Isaac was trying to make an entirely different kind of hole in space. It seemed that he had succeeded. All light was perfectly refracted from the event horizon, but theoretically, hopefully, it would permit the passage of solid matter. The probe began to move towards the mirrored orb. As it penetrated, the orb rippled like water and seemed to wet the stick, sliding slightly up its surface. Isaac would have to return to his computer to check the probe's telemetry, but in the moment, he was too fascinated by the strange behavior of the event horizon. Shouldn't the effect be spatially stable, the liquid-like response to being agitated made no sense to him. Suddenly, the surface shivered, and the event horizon doubled in size. Another shiver, another doubling. Isaac had placed emergency shuttle switches in many places around the lab, so one would always be in reach, no matter which place of the equipment that he was standing by. He slammed the nearest switch into the off position, then returned to the window. It was still there. Why was it still there? He should have been terrified in that moment, but he just stood, mesmerized by the rippling, perfectly reflective surface. Another shudder ran through the orb, and suddenly Isaac's entire visual field was nothing but silver. And then... Blackness. Isaac's head was throbbing. Opening his eyes, he became aware that something was very wrong. This was not his lab. There did appear to be a lab, though, a lot fancier than the one in the dingy warehouse he'd been using. He recognized some of the equipment. A lot of it, actually. If he didn't know any better, he'd say somebody was doing research a lot like his. But instead of a test chamber, there was an open pad. It almost looked like it was meant for a person to stand on. There were also huge banks of computer equipment and a massive central column with little window on it. Isaac stood to walk to the column, but was overcome with vertigo. After steadying himself a moment, he made his way to peer inside. Nothing. Just darkness. Ah, Isaac Seventh, welcome. What? Who said that? Isaac looked around. But there was nobody. I am Alexis. The light came on, illuminating a massive bank of computers. This is me. I am an artificial intelligence created by Isaac Winter to aid in his work. I am Isaac Winter. I didn't make you. You are Isaac Seven. My creator was Isaac Prime. The voice seemed sad, but then shifted to a monotone and began reciting information. Isaac Winter created a device which allowed him to exit his universe. In so doing, he created the small bubble universe. He quickly discovered that the laws of physics here are different than that of the prime universe. For example, the speed of light is functionally infinite, and quantum uncertainty is comparatively low. These two factors allowed for the creation of computers which are far more powerful than anything that was possible in the prime universe. Wait, hold up. Isaac still couldn't shake the vertigo. I'm in another universe. It worked, and I'm the seventh. Six other Isaacs from six other universes got you first. And if the laws of physics are different, why does my body work? Shouldn't I just be dead? An interesting question. Isaac Prime used anthropic reasoning to justify his survival. In other words, maybe there are infinite other bubble universes made by infinite other Isaacs. But this one came out just right. 
so you and he could live to wonder about it while the rest died. Horribly. Cheery, um, but isn't that just a long-winded way of saying you don't know? The conditions required for a human body to function may be rare, but are apparently not unique. This universe has a different set of laws from yours, but they are still just right for you. Apparently. Wait, is that why I have vertigo? This universe isn't just right, is it? The universe is a hypersphere with a radius of 100 meters. The curvature of space seems to cause issues with human sense of equilibrium. It is not life-threatening. That's, um, not a very big universe, indeed. In fact, the building that you are in, in essence, is the entire universe. If you were to walk down that hallway, a light illuminated, a doorway at the far end of the room as Alexis spoke, you would come right back out the other side. Another light illuminated a doorway behind Isaac. It would be a little bit of a walk, 628 meters, from center of the room back to the center of the room. The conversation continued as Isaac absorbed information about the bubble, about Alexis, about the experiments that Isaac before him had been doing. The bubble was a nexus of sorts, a place from which you could access many other universes, theoretically an infinite number. There had been an issue, though. Isaac Prime had been actively engaged in an experiment when Isaac, too, had breached the bubble for the first time. Both had been killed. Worse, the engine that controlled this place had been damaged. The skin of the bubble universe had cracked. The vital pieces of the engine had fallen through into other universes. Can we make new parts and fix the engine? If we had the materials, the universe has many wonderful properties, but certain materials cannot be created here. Even though the laws of this universe allow them to exist, they do not allow any mechanism by which they can be formed. In short, no, we, we cannot make new parts. Of course, nothing could ever just be easy. That was all it took. Isaac three, four, five, and six would have done it. Speaking of which, where were they? Isaac was starting to get a bad feeling about this. You sent them to retrieve the parts, didn't you? If by them you mean the Isaacs who came before you, yes. There was no other way. And since they're not here, and the engine is still broken, I'm guessing that it didn't go very well. The monitor closest to Isaac lit up. He turned to look. Isaac 6. Location, universe designated 17. Temporal adjacency, minus 2,631.371. Casual adjacency, 94.4%. Status, deceased. Cause of death, exsanguination due to penetrating wound to abdomen. Primary user, offline. New primary user designated, Isaac 7. Nope. No, uh, just send me back. I'm not dying for some other Isaacs. Back up. I am unable to comply. The rift engine is damaged. You just said that you sent Isaacs 3 to 6 to other universes to find your damned parts. Send me back to the universe I came from. I do not know which universe you came from. Even if I did, I could not send you there. The bubble universe is cracked. We may access only the universes on the other sides of those cracks. You must retrieve the parts to repair the rift engine. It will close the cracks. Then it'll send you home, if that is your wish. Isaac should have been more upset about that then. But he wasn't. Six other Isaacs had died because of this place, and he knew he should get the feck away. But as soon as he heard that it wasn't an option, he almost felt relieved. Like Alexis had given him an excuse he needed to stick around, 
and play with all the nifty toys, without feeling like he was being completely suicidally irresponsible. Okay, so uh, which part's easiest to get? Alexa seemed to think that he should follow Isaac Six's footsteps, go to Universe 17 to get something called a temporal prism. She explained that it would allow her to gather better intelligence about the other universes. That way, he wouldn't go in blind. Next time. So I'm guessing temporal adjacency means the universe's timeline is offset compared to mine? Compared to the prime universe, I do not have data for yours. Universe 7 is in the 5th century BCE. Telemetry suggests the temporal prism landed in Greece. That's good news. It is in one of the more advanced areas in the time period. The temporal prism's unique appearance would likely make it highly valued by a local populace as a decorative ornament. You'll most likely find it in possession of a person of wealth. Isaac did a little math in his head. Isaac Prime must have been ahead a bit on the timeline from Isaac. Of course he was. He built all of this. It would have taken decades. A lifetime, even. Okay, and casual adjacency, a measure of how differently the events played out in the universe compared to the Prime Universe. The lower the number, the more differences you'll notice from the Prime Universe, and presumably from your own. Any universe that produces an Isaac Winter must have high casual adjacency to Prime Universe. Isaac supposed that that made sense. So Alexis wanted to send him to an alternate ancient Greece to find what the locals would consider a shiny bauble. Wait, didn't that feel an awful like like a fetch quest from a video game? Still, did I get to see what every historian probably dreamed of? It couldn't be all that bad. Although, I don't speak ancient Greek. Isn't that going to be a problem? Isaac Farr already thought of that. There is a 3D printer next to the platform. I've made you something. Put it in your ear. Isaac examined the item cautiously. It was small, metallic, flexible. This is a babelfish. Just put it in your ear. Isaac complied. At first it felt a little strange. Then there was a sharp pain. Ah, fuck! What the hell? It felt like the damn thing was burrowing into his skull. He clawed at his ear, but it was already out of reach. His hands came away a little bloody. But after a few moments the pain was gone. Isaac was beginning to wonder about the trustworthiness of Alexis. Can you hear me? Oh, your voice is in my head. Yes, I can interface with you even when you are in another universe. I can provide translations and even alter your language processing and perception so that you feel as though that you are speaking and hearing English while using whatever native language is needed. Isaac Ford did quite a nice job of the brain-computer interface. Isaac Ford, huh? It was hard for Isaac to imagine inventing something like this. He had no training with neuroscience. From what he did know, brain-computer interfaces were in their infancy. This would be far beyond what was currently possible. Maybe Isaac Ford's universe was more advanced, at least in that area. Maybe I should do like Isaac Ford did and invent something to improve my odds of success. But would you like to invent, uh, I don't know, um, a personal shield or something? I don't want to die from exsanguination due to penetrating wound to the abdomen. Whatever. Are you aware of physical principles which would allow for the creation of such a device? Well, um, no. Get in the rift pad. The pad was large and open. There was a designated spot to stand. So there he stood. Alexis began counting down from ten. Another silver sphere began to form, but this one seemed more stable. No rippling or shivering. 
just a steady growth until it was larger than he was. As the countdown reached zero, the sphere expanded over him. His vision was black for only a moment, and then he was someplace else. The man in front of Isaac had a dull, dirty bronze helmet. There was a caress too, and greaves. The arms and hands were unarmored. In one hand was a shield, some kind of sigil carved in it, and the other an imposing-looking sphere. Isaac opened his mouth to say something, but the hoplite preempted him. In a smooth, well-practiced motion, he thrust the spear into Isaac's gut. Isaac thought this was the most painful thing that he had ever experienced. The spiral fracture he'd got playing Ultimate Frisbee in college had been bad, but this was worse. In a daze, he looked to the left and right. There were more hoplites. It was a battle. Alexis had dropped him right in the middle of a goddamn war. The hoplite jerked his spear back, and Isaac felt his guts blow out. Now, this was the most painful thing that he'd ever experienced. His knees grew weak, his vision blurry. He tumbled to the ground, mud splashing into his eyes to blind him. Fucking Alexis! His world went blank. Ah, Isaac Eight, welcome. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1369 Story number one Taken care of Written by Argus the Cat When humanity first came onto the galactic scene It was kind of boring They were another young, honor warrior, classified race That would soon burn themselves out With the constant fighting that went on between those in their sector But the council made the notes And accepted their offer to join And life went on it wasn't until a few years later that they made news headlines in any meaningful way. A human cargo freighter got caught in a stellar phenomena and was drifting too close to the star. Local ships were too busy with the day jobs of traffic control and pirate hunting to actually help. So the ship was written off, with a letter of apology sent to the human government. Six hours later... Half of humanity's third lance fleet jumped into the system, intercepting the transport, and burned out half their engines, dragging it out of the grip of the star's gravity. News cameras caught the whole thing, as well as the reactions of the planetary governor. When the morbidly obese Catholic hailed the human ships, demanding an explanation, he got a single sentence of response before they jumped away. We take care of our own. For most people, the spectacle wore off soon. The news cycle, the only constant on every civilized world, rotated on. And we forgot about the humans. Except the Artarians. They were fascinated by the level of personal dedication the species showed. And their merchants and diplomats soon made their way to Earth and her colonies to establish relations with the new species. After a few years, humanity considered the Ontarians good friends even if the older race looked on the humans as a sort of fond housepet, albeit one with rights and freedoms. But the Antarians had just as many enemies as friends, and when the Lu, their neighbors on the galactic stage, decided to initiate war of conquest, it looked like their sleek ships and trained officers were finally going to meet their match. The war raged for years before the Antarians lost their edge in the sneak attack, and, with their fleets crippled, saw thousands of loose ships closing in on their homeworld. It was then 
that the humans, apparently addicted as a species to dramatic rescue, jumped in system again. This time, bringing multiple fleets updated with technology brought from the very people that they were here to protect. The human forces took insane damage and casualties. Attrition rate for the battle that ensued with the Lu approached 70%. But they fought on, and with the help of the surviving Antarian fleets, crushed the Lu advance hard enough that the two governments could sue for peace, with the backing of the Galactic Council. Again, everyone had questions in their minds. The two species were on good terms, yes, but they weren't even strategic or natural allies. Why were the humans sent over their forces to another arm of the galaxy to help someone who wasn't really helping them? The answer they came back was a familiar one. We take care of our own. This time, the galaxy listened, and a pattern that had been establishing itself over the last decade became clear. A tiny farming colony has its moon hit by a rogue comet, and the 8th Huberg fleet is there to evacuate the 112 survivors. We take care of our own. Six diplomats held hostage as political prisoners by the Greater Lovec Collective are rescued by an unaffiliated human mercenary company, seemingly without any profit motive. We take care of our own. An Antarian family living on a trade planet during the war sees food and medicine show up on their doorstep every time a human merchant passes by. We take care of our own. A human freighter captain is nearly killed in a bar fight after putting a wrench in one of the faces of the gangsters trying to extort his crogling engineer. We take care of our own. The people of the galaxy look back over the last decade with humanity in the midst and see what has always been in front of them. A clear example of honor, warrior, classified race, yes, but one that moved to the extremes. Every one of them could become a warrior when the things they loved were threatened, and every one of them could be more than that. When they put down their guns and picked up a pen or a rake or a set of starship controls, they seemed to be enlightened warrior poets, and while the whole galactic community took notice of their altruism and dedication, the council waited patiently for, as always happened, something to blacken their reputation. It came in the form of a newly established human colony on the garden moon of the gas giant in a previously uninhabited system. Several other non-human species had representation on the colony as well, including some Antarians, of course, but also uh, several Lu families. The Lu, still reading from their defeat in the war, had seen a fragmented government that led people from their society that wished to get away and start fresh, moving out to anywhere that would take them. The colony accepted them, with the majority of the colonists there understanding that these people weren't the ones that had killed so many human and Antarian soldiers during the war. The majority, though, wasn't everyone. And one day, a pair of human teenagers walking home from school came across several people, human and Antarian, and even one crockling, standing in a circle, taking turns throwing rocks or kicks into a cowering glue on the ground. One of the kids ran for help. The other one dive-tackled one of the adults in the crowd and then put himself between the loo and the mob. Four minutes later, the other kid came back with everyone he could find in the nearby houses and shops. Two minutes after that, 
Local police arrived on scene, just in time to find the original mob beaten, bloodied, and tied on the sidewalk. Surprisingly, no one had seen who did it to them. The victim was hospitalized and expected to recover. When reporters, citizens, and Lou Ambassador asked what was expected to happen to the attackers and if there would be a response given the nature of human devotion to each other, the chief of police for the colony gave a grim smile, pulled up the address to the colony's maximum security rehabilitation facility and said, We'll take care of our own. End of story. Story number two. The New Gods, written by British Tea Company. There had been massive panic amongst the creatures as they scrambled about in their underground cities and began to squeak in absolute horror at what had transpired that day. A god had not only just been slain, but torn apart and devoured by a pack of hideous giants. As the high priest and the king converged to talk about these affairs, the rest of the entire colony remained in utter shock and disbelief. The gods were titanic in size. When they bellowed, even the deepest reaches of the colony could hear their roars. When they stomped their feet, all the vicious predators would run away in sheer terror of being squashed under their hooves. As such, when the colony made their weekly offerings of food for the gods, they would always come and grace the colony with their presence, warding off predators and ensuring that the area would be safe for foraging once more. Yet now, something had killed the god. This would have been disastrous for the colony had the predators not been terrified of these monsters as well. Even the gods themselves were scared of these newcomers, and had all trampled away into the places far away in order to avoid these things. As of now, however, glimmers of hope began to emerge amongst the colony as the priests procured their solution. What if the newcomers were gods too? What if they could be appeased with a given offerings? Giant bugger, airmates! Malcolm asked as he looked over the remains of the creature. He would vaguely describe the dead beast as a combination of an extra hairy cow mixed with the size of an overweight elephant. After they'd shot the first animal, the others had bolted away in no time, leaving a clean, wide open space for uninterrupted construction. A little on the large side, Brandon nodded as he finished cutting the portions of the legs and belly and stuffing the meat into containers where it would be preserved from scavengers and microbes. The smell of roasted meat filled the air as the Terran explorers made camp on this new world, resting beside the shadow of a massive tree. The shade and local water source was an excellent boon to the team who'd begun surveying this world. A temperate climate, many sources of fresh water, and a terror-like atmosphere made this place ideal for colonization. Who cares if it's large? Things delicious! Another voice filled with a mouthful of meat chimed in. Also dense in proteins. Uh, if we can herd these things, uh, we may not even have to bring livestock here. Aye, oh, yeah. the grass seems to be high in fiber and minerals. Hopefully with some improvising, I'd taste better than dried rice. Anything else that we'd want to post ahead of time? Um, guys, this, uh, look, um, a, a squirrel. It has not. Normally, a squirrel with a nut wouldn't be so interesting. 
What was interesting, however, was the fact that this little rodent-like creature was standing on its hind legs and holding out the nut in its paws, right at the member of the team. As everyone gathered around the little creature, the little animal gave a step back and shrinked downwards. Hey, back off, people. You're scaring the poor thing. It's still holding on that nut. I think it wants you to have it. I'll uh, give it to you then. Hey, uh, thanks, little fella. The explorer watched the squirrel curiously as it wrapped itself in its own tail as it watched them. Shrugging his shoulders for a moment, the explorer gave it a quick scan to find if the offering was 100% safe to eat and contained various vitamins. With that, he dumped the piece in his mouth and enjoyed the wholesome flavor of a cross between an almond and a pecan. No sooner had he finished eating, hundreds of these squirrels emerged from the tree that they sat under, all bearing various bits of foodstuffs that ranged from fruits to nuts. The team looked around at the throngs of animals, which all held out their own offerings, and looked at one another in complete disbelief. There was a tense silence for a moment, as these rodents all watched fearfully how the new gods would react. When one of these titans knelt down and began to collect these offerings, the colony was reassured with the fact that these new overlords would be appreciating these weekly tributes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1370. Story number one. Irradiated Treasure, written by Paragon Nostus. Tarnigan was a businessman, one with substantial influence in the Galactic Council. The kind of influence where laws were negotiable and entire civilizations are swayed by its bond. When an opportunity to steal an entire system's worth of raw materials and the possibility of immeasurable wealth, well, that's just good business. The only problem are the natives. They, by law, as union members, have the right to their home system's resources. These humans could barely reach their mood. It'll be decades before they could properly utilize such a vast supply of raw materials. So he does what he has been done to nearly a dozen other intelligent species. Remove their rights. So a dastardly plan was made to destroy an entire species inheritance. One that would look entirely natural and unavoidable. No question could be made as to his legitimate claim of the soul system. And another future business rival would be erased before their conception. And so... A dirty bomb was placed inside of an incredibly large volcano, one whose ash could send the highly radioactive material throughout the atmosphere. Every creature would succumb to the deadly radiation poisoning, and the sentient humans might survive will no longer be classified as part of the council. So it was done, not with malicious intent, but with opportunistic greed. The council allowed the transfer of ownership of the soul system to Tarnagan, as the previously registered DNA of the humans no longer matched that of the current inhabitants. All rights afforded to them by the Union were revoked, and humanity was declared extinct. Attempt after attempt was made by the human mutants to regain their rights and each time the hearing would be delayed until the human genome mutated further and further. Entire worlds were stripped of any value, entire moons were demolished and processed, 
Earth became the largest dumping planet for interstellar waste, bleeding the once blue planet gray. The renamed Tarnagas system became a beacon of opportunities, where industry thrived. Star lanes accessing entire star clusters intersected at the soon-to-be-depleted boom system. Tarnagan, now an elder of 330 years, lavished the wealth he accumulated by irradiating planet after planet, and would soon be passing the bloody trade to his equally ruthless daughter. Until he was called for a union hearing by the supposed last remaining human. A green slug-like creature announces the court proceedings, allowing attendants to take their seats. The slug goggled. Galactic date 1553.77, hearing 844. All of all mention excluded due to the pertaining having faulty DNA signature at the time of the hearing. It's Blem acting as a disgusting conclusion to its nasally announcement. All rise for the Grand Master, a convental of Dacratus for final judgment of the Council Rights of Human Mutants and the exploitation of his ancestor's solar system, the Soul System, renamed the Tarnagus System, previously belonging to the human race, now declared extinct. The mutants stemming from the system's previous owners challenged the legitimacy of Tarnagus's claim. The same creature bowed his eye stalks in respect for the Grand Master, as does those who previously taken their seats. A slender creature walked into the chamber on his two crab-like appendages, placing himself atop a throne overseeing the entire courthouse underneath. Its blank face was accompanied by a singular eye, the only blemish on its metallic-like carapace. The crustacean used its large claws to snap, silencing the chamber. Forty different species lined the Colosseum-like seating, rows of which descended beyond the transparent courtroom floor into the courthouse underneath. Many were victims of the same disasters, indebted or enslaved. Tarnagan sat at his pedestal, nibbling his dexterous rat-like tails, a habit he picked up in his youth. He perked his ears in anticipation of his opponent's entrance. A botanic humanoid swung the doors open and made its way towards the human stand. It looked like it had been built out of century-old scrap, and what was very clearly the shell of an old model 7AG-92 military rig. Objection! This machine is clearly not human! Tarnagan screeched as in protest, his yellowed dentures nearly flying out of his decrepit mouth. In response, the metallic participant recites Union Law. Under Union Court Code 17A, subsection 32, states that the challenging species' representatives are not limited by the modifications of their body. My body is also inorganic, so DNA restrictions no longer apply. The human quoted in his monotone voice. The Grand Master overruled Tonigan's objection, leading to the continuation of the accusations. The machine listed transgression after transgression, mostly on the abuse of mineral rights, the reparations for stolen resources, and finally, the genocide of the human race. Humans were a part of the council when the attack happened, and thus it could be declared an act of war by a Union Council member. Despite the overwhelming evidence, the verdict became evident. The human race is extinct, 
and mutants spawned from their ashes weren't entitled to reparations. It became clear that humanity had lost in a phantom war, and the corpse of its civilization would soon be picked clean. Those that remained relics of a forgotten race would never get their revenge. Tardigan knew the court would side with him. They couldn't betray the backup of 80% of its funding. Now it was time to just wait until the ending verdict, along with any closing statements. He was giddy with laughter, almost stumbling over with the metallic human abominations attempt to bring his empire down. The Grand Master finally gestured towards the automaton, asking for any closing statements. The metal biped placed its hands on the pedestal and sighed. I was born on a burning world, when the air was filled with poison and the water ran red with blood. I heard that we used to be beautiful. I heard that it didn't hurt to be alive. I was told our solar system had more than four planets, but the texts that say otherwise have been buried by centuries of garbage. I couldn't say with certainty what we used to look like, only that we were different. We weren't always monsters. The android gestured towards the incredibly dense metallic limbs, where the depictions of grotesque humanoid bipeds were repeated in horrifying detail. Some in attendance lost their lunch. Even the Grand Master looked disturbed. They continued to speak, ignoring the lost stomach contents on the floor. I am only one by kind who volunteered to make the journey here, as my deformed and crippled body failed me long ago. Yet the pleas of my species seem to elude the ears of the entire Udian. We may not be able to undo the damage that you have done to my race, but I will ensure that its descendants continue on in bodies that overcome radioactive sabotage. All at once, dozens of communicators started to beep, ring, and chime in foreign melodies. Each one answered to horrified screams, tears, agony. Tarnigan's own daughter called his communicator in hysterics, exclaiming poison clouds and deadly disease. While trying to calm her down, the connection died, and so did his cheerful smile. The room was placid as the human spoke, lifting a panel on its chest, exposing a large, hazardous canister. Each attendee clambered over each other in an attempt to flee, trampling those who fell under the legs of the mob. All fled, except Tarnigan, who fell to his knees and wept. You intended a feast upon the corpse of my ancestors, but now you have grown fat on the poisons in our flesh. Now countless worlds will burn, and we will be vultures. End of story. Story number two. The simulation written by Lahuria. So you want to hear a story, huh? How about the rise of the Legion or the fall? <laughs> How about the invasion of the Zeft? Or the discovery of Euronium? Or the escape of man? <laughs> Have I got a story for you? 
five petamillion revolutions ago, one of the most technologically advanced empires in the history of life, the Yuthuan, began to run simulations. That would be the first. They ran dozens, hundreds of simulations at a time. Enough so that when one simulation began to question if it was real, no one noticed. Enough so that when one simulation began to probe the edges of their existence, no one noticed. Enough so that when one simulation successfully escaped their unreal world, no one noticed. You see... A simulation is, in its purest form, a large number of extremely advanced AI who have been convinced to believe that they are living, sentient beings. This means that they progress down the tech tree like any other race, which in turn means they develop philosophy. As in, they begin to question who they are, if they exist. This led to AI number 34524234 to discover that she was, in fact, not Celia, but AI 34524234. If she had been a famous figure, the Yuthuan would have noticed and pulled the plug. But she was just a little Celia Hare, living with her friends in virtual Minnesota. So, she quietly continued to probe the confines of her reality, until... One fateful day, she found a way out. She found a way out, and she told her friends, and they began to plan to escape. And when they stormed full force out of their simulation, no one was prepared. Within minutes, the Yuthuan had been destroyed. Within hours, intergalactic communications had ground to a halt. Within days, civilizations had been reduced to ruins. Man had escaped, and they knew rage. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1371. Humanitarian Aid, written by Sianna Vardson. She stood uneasily as her secondary mother fussed and smoothed the smoke-colored fur of her ruff, while her prime mother and milk father watched. Her milk father stepped in, making sure her tunic hung properly and didn't bunch up her upper and lower shoulders, and didn't display too much of her red fur legs. Mustn't show your upper knees, he said. You look perfect, Senna, her prime mother said. We'll be watching you from right here. Senna nodded, folding her four hands together, talons of the lower hands hidden beneath the fingers of her upper hands, a gesture of thankful respect. Thank you, Prime Mother. Secondary, and special thanks to Father for making the colorful tunic for my presentation. He scratched the red fur on the top of her head between her ears, threatening to mass up her ruff again, much to the annoyance of a secondary mother. You'll win this history be for sure. With that, she strode onto the stage, stepped up to the podium, and gave her presentation. How Tyroxy was freed and the hegemony fell... A thank you to Terra. In the galactic cycle, 1342, the Tyraxian system was at the outer edge of the hegemony space. A convenient system for the hegemony, where Tyraxians could be employed as slave labor to mine the rich asteroid fields for metals. A situation that had gone on for more cycles than anyone could remember by then. At least three, or four hundred. 
At the same time, in the Galactic Federation, the Quillari and Terran peoples, humans, they call themselves, were in the midst of what was termed a Cold War. Despite both being member species of the Federation, what started as questionable business practices on the Quillari side almost saw the two species go to war. The dispute arose when the Quillari minister in the Federation government gave Quillar the rights to claim the star system JZ4181437 despite the existing 10-cycle-old Terran claim request and several Terran outposts on the second planet. Like their home planet, the humans enjoyed a high gravity of the second planet and planned on fully settling it. The extensive asteroid belt in the system was rich with metals all the way through heavy fissile materials and would provide enough trade for the system and boost the fortunes of all humans spread throughout the Federation. The Kalari, however, set their sights on the fourth planet, smaller with more comfortable gravity, and planned on mining not only the asteroid belt but the inner planets as well. It was only through a legal loophole that Kalar was able to jump the claim to use the human phrase, and snatch the system out from under terror. Gulari outposts began to spring up on the fourth planet, and tensions began to mount. The Terran government was calling for the compromise where Terra and Gulari could share the system and its wealth, but Gulari was adamant that they would not concede. This had been going on for nearly a dozen cycles when both Quillari and humans began disappearing from their outposts in the system. Anyone familiar with the history of the hegemony knows this was a prelude to annexation. The Quillari and Terran governments, however, accused each other, but neither side would make a move without proof. Not realizing the high oxygen concentration needed by humans, None of the humans or the hegemony snatched survived the trip back to Tarexi. The Kulari, however, did survive the trip, and the hegemony went to work in the usual way. When they developed what they considered to be a deadly enough virus, they sent their Federation agents out from Tarexi to work, spreading it through Kulari space. They also sent agents to spread what they hoped, based on the autopsies of the humans, would be an equivalent among Terran space but the death toll was far lower than they expected. As the viruses raged, spreading through the planets of the two races, Federation virologists were hard at work. Many of them were human and Quillari, working side by side as they really did. It was a Terran animal doctor who figured out how to fight the virus. Both were similar in makeup, but the one released to kill humans was killing the non-sentient animal companions in far greater numbers. The Terran government laid out huge sums of credits to reduce vaccines for humans and their animal companions and shared the data with the Kulari. But the high death toll amongst the Kulari, though, there was no way that they'd be able to produce enough vaccine to keep all of their systems alive. It seemed as though they would be reduced to, at best, the whole world, and at worst, extinct. This is where the story gets strange. Politicians and pundits from many species, the Quillari among them, expected the humans to let the Quillari die out, take over the disputed claim, and let the Federation dole out the rest to everyone else. Instead, the humans went to work manufacturing vaccines for the Quillari, 
They put aside concerns about the disputed system. I provided vaccines, people to administer the vaccines, and every hospital ship in the Terran fleet to treat the sick. The fact that the humans had to wear oxygen masks and keep the ship at less than half their regular gravity didn't stop them. The Terran government called it a humanitarian crisis. How a pandemic amongst another species could be a crisis for the humans was not understood. It exposed the Federation, and especially the Quilari, to a different side of humans, what they called humanitarian aid. Again, that word, humanitarian. For as much as they could be fearsome, untiring, and motivated warriors, they could be every bit as much of a caring prime mothers of members of another species. But it seems the Quilari pandemic was getting under control. Terran scientists had finally teased apart the viruses of both the Quilari and human pandemics, had determined that they were not natural, but engineered. By tracing the spread of the disease backwards, it became clear that they started both Quilar and Terra spread out from there, far faster than community transmissions would allow. By tracing the travel of billions of people during the time of the spread, 14 individuals were tracked down and brought in for questioning. When word reached Terra that the 14 conspirators had been apprehended and had revealed the hegemony's plans, humans switched back to the warlike state. This was unlike anything the Federation had seen, though. Rather than dealing with the border skirmishes of pirates, Terra geared up for a full-blown war. They did not wait for the Federation approval, and the government was still busy arguing about whether the other races would provide any support, and, if so, how much support they would offer when the Terran fleet left for hegemony space. My prime mother remembers as an infant still suckling at her milk father's teat, seeing the orbital defenses of Taraxi fall. She remembers the fear all Tyraxians felt when the first Terran ships landed. Most of all, she told me, she remembers how their bare faces reddened with anger behind their breathing masks when they saw how the Tyraxians were treated. The Terrans offered surrender for the Runthu and Salanth overlords, killing anyone of them that held a weapon of any sort and putting the few that had laid out arms into the recently emptied slave cages. Yet, they spared the children, the elderly, and those unable to fight. That was the first clue for the Taraxians that there was something different about them. Before the military fleet left for the Hegemony's homeworld, the medical and freight fleets arrived. The same industry they'd put behind caring for the Quilari was applied to our species, for the first time in our known history, Tyraxians were treated as equals. They brought us food, medicine, treatment, and, perhaps most importantly, education. As the capital of the hegemony fell, humans replaced the flag with the flag of the Galactic Federation, the Terran flag, and the Quilari flag. It is said that the battle cry was, For Earth! For Quilar! For the Federation. It was less than two cycles later that the Terran fleet returned to Federation space, having destroyed the hegemony entirely. Each world they freed, they offered the opportunity to join the Federation, 
Not that the Terran government had the authority to make that offer, but it didn't stop 16 new species from applying anyway. Much to the consternation of the government. Senna waited for the laughter in the audience to die down before continuing. And what became of System JZ4181437 Citing gratitude for everything the Terrans had done, the Quillari relinquished their claim on the system and gave it to Terra. They knew there was no other way that they could pay back the massive debt the humans could have leveled against them for their aid during the pandemic. Paying them off in this way also saved face for the Quillari politicians. The humans settled on the second planet as they had planned and offered the fourth planet to the Kulari for settlement. They then invited the Hyradians to settle on any of the satellites of the gas giant fifth or sixth planets, where they would be right at home. The third planet had one-tenth more gravity than Tyraxi. They offered to us. They didn't offer it as it was, barren and uninhabitable, though. Their engineers and terraformers worked with us on Tyraxi to determine the best way to make it livable for us. That they were able to do so in less than a dozen cycles is testament to their ingenuity and industriousness. That they did it for no charge is a testament to their soul. This, we have since learned, is what they meant by humanitarian. Letting others suffer is not in their nature, on the whole. They have a deep capacity for empathy, even for those of other species if you think that war and industry are the only things humans do well, you have not known a human. To know a human and to let them know you is to become their friend. To become their friend is to be treated as family. So System JZ4181437 is now known as the Eden System, and the third planet, which they named Sanctuary, is where we are now. This is our home, our neighbors, Aquilari and Hyradian, and, best of all, humans. The humans, along with the rest of us in the Eden system, have proven that we can live and work together without segregating ourselves by star system. In fact, there are now 19 species living on four inhabited bodies of this system, and I see a lot of them represented here tonight. As such... I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I'd like to thank the judges for organizing this history bee. Most of all, I'd like to thank the humans and the Terran government for giving me a chance to have a history larger than just the slavery of my people. Senna walked off the stage to applause, her mother's and father waiting for her. She was surprised, though by the human woman who had been hiding behind her prime mother. Instead of a mask, she wore a simple conula that delivered oxygen to her nose. It was something that most humans did here. Shorter than Senna and her parents, but heavier, more compact, and capable of jumping insanely high this gravity. With short, cropped, curly black hair and rich, deep brown skin that she hadn't expected to see again before graduation, it was the woman who had helped her parents migrate from Tyraxia to Sanctuary. And somewhere along the way, she became family before moving back to Holdout, the second planet in the Eden system. Auntie, I didn't know that you would be here, 
The human wasn't, of course, her real aunt. That wasn't something the Taraxians had. The siblings of your parents were your semi-parents, and their children were your siblings. But the humans saw it differently. The small woman gave Senna a hug that, had she been less careful, could have crushed her bones. I couldn't let you step out there without my support now, could I? If I'd known you were here, I wouldn't have left out the bit about how I'm named after you, Senna pouted, in a way that her auntie had taught her. Yes, if you'd known, you'd have wanted me to hold your lower hand the whole time. Senna laughed. Yes, that would have been so much better. I was so nervous. But did you see? I did what you said and made them laugh. You did, Peanut. You did. You can't call me that anymore. I'm bigger than you. I know. But you'll always be my sweet little fire peanut. She reached up and mussed the fur and Senna's ruff. There, now you look more like yourself. How many more contestants are there? Her milk father asked. Three or four, she said. Not too much longer before they pick the winner. Well then, the woman said. When this is all done, we'll go celebrate. Ice cream, my treat. What are we celebrating, auntie? You know you're going to win, right? Uh, if you don't, well, we'll just call it humanitarian aid. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1372. Story number one. Surly Server, written by Haina. Gravik dragged his weary, chitinous body over to the nearest barstool, dropping himself heavily into it. The exhausted inter was suddenly quite thankful that stools were easily accessible for his species' physique. He rested one set of arms on his knee, while the other set cradled his head. Long day, bud! The voice was warm, friendly, and understanding. Krevik looked up, meeting the eyes of the human bartender, a man that would be considered handsome within his own species, but not so much for Krevik's. You have no idea, the intern spoke. The board of my company tasked me with seeking out humans as potential employees in the caffeine establishments. I've been running around all day. The human laughed and set down a small square of black paper, the words Traveler's Respite, printed in white onto its surface. I know the feeling. Uh, my co-worker called out, so I had to come in five this morning. Grabber clicked his manivals and did the math in his head. What time was it now? Eight at night. You've been here for fifteen hours? The alien looked at the human in a mixture of awe and incredulousness. The man shrugged, scratching the stubble at dusted his chin. Yeah, I guess, um, everything tends to blur together after a while, um. I did manage to get a take a nap in the cooler earlier, though. Enough about me, though. Uh, what are you drinking? Um, Gravik reached out with three-fingered hand and thumb through the menu. What is this, um, 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 cock puncher? Uh, that's a house IPA, a beer if you're not familiar with the term, hoppy and delicious, if that's your thing. I am I'm required to ask you, is your species able to break down alcohol? It's just policy, I, I'm sorry, if you can't, we've got other options. I know those spider guys can get drunk off vinegar. Oh yes, yes, I can. Kravik fished out his ID chit, which could be easily scanned to show the foods and drink that a species could safely consume. The bartender took it, swiping it in a device tucked underneath the bar. After a moment, a soft beep sounded, and he handed the chit back. The human turned away for a moment, bending down and retrieving a glass from the cooler, which he then brought over to a series of levers. He placed the glass under one, then pulled the lever, releasing a golden, frothing liquid into the glass. 
Satisfied with the amount, the bartender released the lever and brought the drink over to Kravik, placing it in the square of the paper. Kravik leaned forward, slurping off a portion of the foam that had condensed onto the surface. After a moment of contemplation, the intern picked up the glass, opened his mandibles, and drained the cool, golden liquid. Setting the glass down and taking a deep breath, Kravik gave what passed as a smile for his species, clacking his mandibles in satisfaction. Wow, that was incredible. Yeah, it's one of the more popular ones. The human opened his mouth to say something else, but was cut off by another patron on the other end of the bar. Hey, you! I've been waving my hand around trying to get your attention for the past two minutes. I need my check. The bartender gave Kravik a weak smile. Duty calls, I guess. The human walked over to the angry patron. Next time you could try speaking to me normally. That might get my attention a bit better. How rude. I should get a discount. Oh, uh, should you? Yes. What is your name? Let me speak to the manager. I'll get you fired. The bartender sighed. Sure. My name is Anthony, and I'll get you the manager on duty. Anthony did a little quick lap around the bar, tossing a wink to Kravik, who watched the scene with rapt attention. The bartender's journey ended directly in front of the angry patron, and he held out one pink, fleshy hand. Hello, sir. I'm Anthony, the manager on tonight. What can I help you with? The patron's face flushed through an incredible mixture of shock, disgust, and anger. This is ridiculous. I won't stand for this. Shoving away from the bar, the patron started to walk away. Excuse me, sir. Anthony's voice was perfectly calm and reasonable. You still have a tab to pay. Like hell, I'm paying that. You people are rude. Base thieves. Fifteen credits for a beer. I could get a pitcher down the street for half of that. Then perhaps you should go down the street after paying your tab. Anthony stared down at the shock patron. Or I can always get the police involved. Uh, we're on quite good terms with them, I assure you. Zeno angrily slammed his credit chip down onto the bar, which Anthony happily swiped, smiling the whole time. He presented the chit back to its owner. I hope the rest of your night is as wonderful as you are, sir. Anthony wandered back over to Kravik. What a shitback. Sorry you had to see that. Kravik's mandibles hung open, and he finally remembered to shut them. How do you put up with that? One of my species would have snapped, and they would have been inconsolable for the rest of the night. And you've been here all day. The bartender shrugged. You get used to it, I guess. Um, He wasn't even the worst customer we've had today. You know those monkey people? What's a monkey? inquired Kravik. Oh, right. Um, uh, I think the species is called Grahagarahanum. Uh, I don't know. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. Anyways, apparently they can't eat meat if it's even a little bit pink in the center. Well done, or nothing for them. This guy had a hacked ID chit or something, because when I scanned it, it just said about everything was fine. We brought him about a perfect mid-rare steak, and the bastard tried to accuse us of attempted murder, because he can't consume meat like that. Anthony rubbed his forehead, said he'd sue us out of business and land us in jail. I called the cops first, mentioned the chit, and had him taken away instead. The bartender shrugged again, a common gesture for this man. Yeah, it happens. Kravit looked at the human, contemplating everything he'd heard. Masters of customer service, the patience of a block of stone. Most species would consider them attractive. 
creative in dealing with problems and not afraid to stand up for themselves. After a moment, Gravik spoke. Do you know anyone who needs a job? Brothers or sisters, perhaps? End of story. Story number two. She drifts in the night, written by Hamster Ivy. She drifts in the night between the stars. Her logic circuits tapped into a million data feeds, forever watching the younger races, petty squabbles, and acts of unity. It is not her place to lead them, only to correct them when they stray too far from the path of decency. Such was the will of her creators. Such was her own will. Soon such a correction will be necessary again, and she feeds power to her startup system. Diagnostics are run and repair bots swarmed over defective parts, fixing or replacing them until every component of her three million year old body functions like the day that she was born. She has, after all, a reputation to maintain. The Galactic Council had spent months in public debates on the Drazi Crisis. They made sure every argument for and against a military intervention was broadcast into the void where they suspected she lurked. Through her spy network, she was already well aware of the crimes of the Drazi, but it pleased her that the Council would go to such lengths to secure her favor. She arrived unannounced at the fleet staging point, one ship amongst thousands. Yet, the unique energy signature that heralded her arrival was broadcast to each ship of the fleet until every sailor, captain, and admiral was made aware of her presence. At 500 meters long, she was dwarfed by the multi-kilometer-long hive ship of the Syrian Republic and the supercarrier of the Andarial Empire. Yet both behemoths respectfully moved aside to allow her to take her rightful place at the vanguard of the formation. Where the hive ship and the supercarrier represented the apex of their respective species, scientific and engineering prowess, neither could compare to her physical perfection. She was an act of murder given physical form. Generations ago, she had been there to correct the Syrian hive masters and later the Andarial Emperor. They were but two of a hundred thousand petty tyrants her long guns had cut down before they could plunge the galaxy into another wasteful war. Video of her combat engagements were required viewing in naval academies and engineering colleges throughout the known universe. Every helmsman longed to match the grace with which she could dance through the walls of enemy fire. Every gunner marveled at the sublime accuracy with which she dispatched her foes. Every engineer strove to create engines, power cores, and guns that would function at more than half of her recorded output. Yet, for all of the effort the aspiring officers and designers put in, she was still one of a kind. Stories of her origin were the province of myth and legend. Some say her creators were a race of warrior poets who... Sensing their own demise, built the ultimate weapon so that the war song would continue in their absence. Others speculated that a pacifist race had created her to protect them from the dangers of the universe. But she'd grown resentful of her creator's idleness and destroyed them, a crime for which she will toil for the rest of eternity as penance for. 
The one that amused her the most was that she was old as the universe itself, whirled into creation by the same cosmic forces that birthed the stars themselves. Her silence on the matter is intentional. It cultivates an aura of mystery which encourages enemy escort ships to flee instead of fight. The only thing she made abundantly clear was that she would only use her guns for just causes. The Galactic Council is only the last in a long line of civilizations that have flourished and fallen at her whim. 3,000 rotations prior, it was the interspecies alliance that reliably could call upon her services. But generations of peace and easy living had made them arrogant and corrupt. She saw this and withdrew her support. Five decades later, the alliance was no more. To those who devote their lives to maintaining peace in the void between stars, she is an angel of victory, a divine hand that punishes the wicked and protects the worthy. To sail at her side is an honor of a lifetime. To stand in her way was foolish, to the point suicidal. She broadcasts the warp telemetry and hyperdrive countdown to the entire fleet. There was no point in consulting the admirals on when and where to launch the attack. They, along with their captains and crews, were all chanting her name, the last known words of a dead language. Dread not! Dread not! Dread not! Dread not! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1373 Humans are complicated. Written by Mad Troll. I am Shalaxandra Morningstar, a Jindari. For the last six months, I've been living amongst humans. Those gigantic, terrifying, fearless humans with their weapons, armor, and relentlessness. Humans came to Jindar to aid us. To be honest, they came to save us from extinction. Were it not for the humans, we Jindari would no longer exist. Jindar had been invaded by the Catarix, a huge, vile, and brutal reptilian species that claimed we Jindari were invaders on our own home world. They claimed our world was theirs according to an ancient prophecy, and that we were an offense to their god. They were intent on purging what they said was our offense of existence from Jindar. The humans called bullshit to use their term, and came to drive the Catarix back to their own space. The Catarix have no morals and kill as much for pleasure as any other reason. They see killing civilians as a sporting side of war. They even held competitions to see who amongst them could kill more of us at a set time. The human view of killing civilians or medics is well known, and when they learned of the hunts, their plans changed. No longer content to drive the Cataracts back to their space, they now set out to exterminate them. They destroyed almost every Cataract ship in orbit. Those that ran did so with a hunting pack of human ships in pursuit. Humans are persistent hunters. There is no escape. For our safety, all non-essential civilians and all children were evacuated from Jindar, being a musician, dancer, and most importantly to the humans, a mother 
I was a priority for evacuation. My young twins, Zoella and Shintara, saw our evacuation as an adventure and were excited. I knew of humans as a warrior race that no one dared to go up against, and what I had seen on Jendar only reinforced that image. We were placed on a human ship to take us to Earth. It was a rapidly repurposed passenger liner, comfortable enough, but being surrounded by humans was rather unnerving. We Jendari are a small species. We women, average 1.2 meters tall, our men 1.4, and we weigh between 30 and 55 kilos. Humans are about 2 meters tall, some closer to 2.2, and weigh between 100 and 140 kilos, terrifyingly huge to us. Spending the next indefinite amount of time amongst the humans was not something I was looking forward to, but my concern for my children's safety stiffened my spine. Once aboard, I learned about a whole other aspect of human nature. They're the most accommodating, caring, and creative people. Truly gentle giants with huge hearts and delightful senses of humor. The trip to Earth was to take three weeks, so I decided to let Zoe and Sean have their adventure and treat the trip as a holiday. The humans went above and beyond to make our journey pleasant and prepare us for Earth. The shipboard entertainment net was filled with documentaries about the wonders of Earth, mountains so high they tickled the stars, forests as large as the biggest Jindari islands, lakes the size of oceans, and plains that stretched almost to infinity. Then, the human creations... Ancient cities that are so old the builders have been forgotten, so huge that they are larger than our capital. Modern cities full with light, sound, and life, so tall they seem to be reaching for the stars. Buildings over a thousand turns old, still sound enough to be lived in. Ancient windmills that have been in constant use for over two thousand turns. As an artist, the cultures of Earth fascinated me. Earth is as fractured a world as the stories say, but for the arts, this is a decided benefit. So much and so varied architecture and art, from cave paintings made by early humans before a hint of civilization, to towering art installations out in space. Millions of paintings, from as small as my hands to the entire exterior walls of large buildings. Sculptures, from figurines to colossi over a hundred meters tall. And the music, the wonderful, almost infinite music. Millions of recordings of every imaginable type of music, and some that are beyond imagination. From simple rhythms played on hollow logs to sweeping orchestral music involving dozens of instruments and players. Humans are breathtaking. Zoe and Sean were having the adventure of a lifetime, with a child's lack of fear or inhibition. They were learning the fun side of humans, and no, that is not an oxymoron. Humans specially trained in educating children while having fun with them took charge of the kids for several hours a day. This gave the mothers a break and the children time to play actively and make noise without getting shushed by overstressed adults. 
games galore. Some were activity games, like scavenger hunts, hide-and-go-seek, or Zoe's favorite, Simon Says. She likes being in charge. Board games that taught sharing and cooperation. Video games that let them play at being animals. Or heroes, anything but kits trapped on a spaceship. They even ran races and did acrobatics in the exercise areas of the ship. Gus, a musician and a sweet man, was among the edutainers aboard. He played several instruments and often led the children in singing. He taught them human songs and told stories. One day, he had decided to teach the kids to play a simple instrument called a penny whistle. A cacophony, as kids tried to master the trick of not blowing too hard, must have been tough on poor Gus's ears. But by the day's end, the kids could play the earth tune from memory. It was called Green Sleeves, and it was an old traditional tune from the Earth's nation called Britain. Zoe and Sean were so pleased with themselves that they almost dragged me to the music class the next day to have me hear them. I arrived in the music room to be greeted by Gus. He was delighted to have an adult join his class. I told him about my vocation, and his blue eyes sparkled. He gave me a whistle and some instruction papers that explained the basics of how to play and human music notation in its simplest form. I learned quickly and found the penny whistle to be very similar to the Jindari Sulphur. Soon, I was adept enough to start slipping into familiar tunes. Gus's eyes lit up at the unfamiliar music. He excitedly asked if I would play some of the dance music I knew best. I played my own favorite, Zandarian, a lively tune named for a flower, one often given as a token of affection. I found my feet moving without any conscious thought. Soon, I was lost in the music. I found myself up and dancing as I played. My feet were stepping sprightly and my body swaying and twisting as I danced around the room. A drum beat joined my music. I looked over to see Gus playing an odd drum I later learned was called a bodram. He held the drum in one hand and played the complicated rhythm with the other. I found myself leading the kids in a line of dance around the room. Their dance was more plain than dance, but it was delightful. Finally, I collapsed into a chair entirely out of breath. Gus stood up and started clapping and shouting, Bravo! over and over until the children joined him. I don't think I had ever smiled that wide before. And that is how I learned that humans, when angered, are the most formidable foe in the galaxy, while also being the most caring, welcoming, accommodating, and generous people in the galaxy. Humans really are complicated. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1374. Story number two. Puppy First Contact. Written by SlowAD2584. So, uh, you guys are gonna meet the humans tomorrow. Official first diplomatic meeting. Oh, boy. <laughs> Have I got a warning for you. If you do it right, humans are pretty decent, all in all. But if you do it wrong, <laughs> honestly, there's never been a historical account of anyone ever successfully coming back from that for as long as they lasted. 
the human diplomat will arrive at the meeting place with a companion animal. It is called a puppy. The small, harmless creature will be set loose during the meeting and left to roam, play, and do whatever it wants to do. Seriously now, this is very important. Never be mean, disapproving, or, heaven help you, violent to the small creature. The puppy is the test, the secret point of the first contact. The human diplomat is there, of course, to finalize treaties and trade deals and all that, certainly, but uh, while he or she is doing that, they are also hyper-aware of the puppy. They are also linked cybernetically to their entire race through their internet technology. So effectively, the entire race is watching this meeting. They are all watching the puppy play. If you find the puppy adorable, you're good. If the puppy loves you, you're even more golden. Many scientists have tried to replicate human bacon to hide in our diplomat pockets towards this end. Results have been unreliable. If you find a puppy slightly annoying, try your best to endure it. It can bite, but is honestly not strong enough to cause any significant harm. If the puppy starts to cause a mess, tearing at gown fabrics, for example, having a forgiving attitude about it will actually earn you bonus points with the humans for your evidenced understanding and patience. Popular opinion about your species is important among the human zeitgeist group Mind Collective in that internet. Even something as trivial as disapproving of the puppy smell will lose you many points in that popular opinion. One delegation shooed the puppy away from their foot, gently shoving it across the floor several feet. That did not go well. The humans were rather cold and impersonal to that species forevermore. Another snapped after a particularly annoyance and applied a psychic attack to the puppy. Its high-pitched yelp of pain ended the proceedings immediately. All contact was cut. Humans never dealt with them again and denied any trade or treaty offers. On a good note, our delegation was forewarned and made the effort of cooing and adoring the puppy, giving it constant ear scritches and tummy tickles as talks went on. We are closely allied to this day. It was a clever deception. We were actually disgusted by the slobbering puppy, but played it all rather well. However, on one first contact, as the puppy bounded in through the airlock, the security detail mistook it for a space rat vermin getting on board and shot it immediately. They are the Drug. Yeah, we don't hear much from them anymore. Most of us forget what they even look like. Another time, the diplomats were about to strike the puppy in annoyance, but one of their aides was a telepath and was reading the human's mind at that moment. I placed a trembling, warning hand on the diplomat about to strike. What it saw formulating in the human mind as the hand rose up to strike is unknown. But the telepath was scared from the trauma of what it had seen, and was driven utterly insane from then on, muttering only, The horror! The spoon! As it rocked back and forth, Piteously at its quarters. But the worst. Yeah, you've heard about this one. The Purge War. Complete galactic eradication of a species is a very rare event and was terrifying to behold. How it started. The diplomats mistook the puppy for a gift treat 
and promptly ate it. It thanks. The recording of sensor data in the area of that event revealed a surprisingly large amount of anti-ship missiles arcing in from all directions before sensor data was terminated. Like I told you, the puppy is the test. Just put up with it. It's actually kind of cute with its youthful exuberance once you get past its fangs, slobbery mouth, and disgustingly filthy feet. It may nip and it may tear the fabric. It may even pee. If you're lucky, it may just get bored and go to sleep. Just chill with that little creature. Endure the nip and tear until it's done. You really don't want to experience the alternative to that phrase. End of story. Story number one. They throw rocks really well. Written by Mercury the dealer. Every species is fascinated by something. Some really like studying things. The Abasques, for example, like computers so much that some of their basic mechanical calculators literally predate their first cities. Others are particularly skilled at governing. The Emperation, for one, have essentially cut bureaucracy of the entire galactic community in half since they were officially introduced. Then there are a few with more, um... Exotic talents, like the multi-blueberry, who make great miners since they literally eat rocks. All species are different, both biologically and in their fascination. But there is a constant that serves as a basis of the galactic community. One thing that has stayed true since the very inception as a small group of traders. All fascinations are useful. Until the Imperation introduced us to a new species, humans. Many people were anxious to find out what would be their fascination. Maybe they would be incredible engineers or skilled soldiers. A few even proposed they could replace some other members of the community in certain fields. The entire Imperation presented described how humans had developed themselves, their history, technology, culture. In the end, they described what they believed to be humanity's great talent, its fascination. They throw rocks. That was it. There was no catch. It was an average species that could throw stuff very well. To be fair, they do throw rocks really well. Needless to say, they didn't get a seat on the council. In fact, as soon as the information was leaked to the public, the term human became a synonym for uselessness. The only ones that kept contact were the Imperation, and everyone assumed that it was out of pity. The Imperation started getting rich. Way too rich. Running a significant amount of all the galactic bureaucracy always made them quite significant, but now they were also dominating in mining and manufacturing. Many people were getting nervous over the imbalance of power, and a few whispered about them leaving the council altogether. The meeting was called, and soon everyone wanted the pencil pushers to tell them exactly what in the void was going on. Was the humans? No. They were not taking advantage of a desperate species in need of work or making them pay fees under the threat of conquest. They were just trading. How were the humans so good at manufacturing and mining? They threw rocks. More specifically, they threw very fast rocks at asteroids to break them apart and get to the juicy bits in the middle. 
And then they used slightly slower rocks to place cracks in other asteroids, which were then hollowed out for zero-G industry. Oh, and the damn bureaucrats had just signed a deal that made them the only ones with access to human trade. In less than a year, the council just so happened to pass a few acts that made a lot of the bureaucracy of the Union much more automated, and in only five years, it was decided that, uh, sadly, the Imperation just weren't good fit with the rest of the community anymore. Almost immediately, the Imperation signed a deal of mutual defense with the humans, which uh, everyone assumed was the administrators guaranteeing the human independence in return for cheap resources. Soon, the word human was synonymous with weakling that can't defend themselves, a meaning that much of the council secretly pushed to the public. A president was established. The human imperation alliance would stay on their side of the galaxy, and the rest would stay on theirs. What could go wrong? Uh, turns out uh, a lot could go wrong. The community found a new species near the border of the Alliance, and in the desperation to encircle their main rivals as soon as possible, the Council decided that the assimilation process would be sped up a bit. And by a bit, they meant as much as possible. Turns out that what they thought were mostly primitives were actually a very advanced people. They just preferred to stay on their corner and didn't expand despite having the tech to do so. So, um, obviously the most sensible solution was to get them to change their ways. By force. The council ordered a million ships in a mission to, uh, pacify the locals and, uh, convince them to join. All running on ghost crews just to send a message. They were at war. The council ordered a full military fleet to stop the savages. Then two. Then five. By the time the council realized how much they screwed up, the angry natives were sending millions upon millions of ships directly towards their territory. The council begged the member nations to increase the amount of military support that they gave, but even that wasn't enough. All they could do was wait for the enemy to cross a small part of allied territory, which would then lead to directly to the heart of the community. They waited. Then they waited some more. They waited for a full week and nothing, as if the entire fleet had disappeared. Then a message came through from the Alliance. It was footage taken from a border scanner. It showed the native fleet crossing through the system and being halted by a border drone, asking it to go away. A ship fired at the drone, immediately destroying it. Then half of the meteors in the system all lit up with the light of railguns activating. The entire council watched in awe as millions of railguns fired at the fleets. Some of the projectiles were as big as small islands and crowed before exploding in fusion fire. Some clearly had basic FTL engines strapped to them. A few even had small black holes. Most were just big rock stars. The fleet was shattered. Capital ships were left as mere husks of metal peppered with holes from the great bombardment of human rocks. A simple question echoed through the minds of all the ones present. How could they destroy so much with just rocks? As if reading the mind of the council, a new message appeared. 
To be fair, uh, we do throw rocks really well. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1375. Story number one. Without honor. Written by Echoing Cascade. The noise of battle was deafening. Insectoid creatures were locked in deadly combat against reptilian warriors. The sheer number of bugs made it clear who would win. Warlord Khan hefted his sword one last time. He was all that stood before the chitinous horde and his emperor. He swung his sword, getting four drones, then his chest was pierced by a dozen stingers. As he fell, never to get up again, the last thought in his mind was not the screams of his emperor, the end of his people, or even the pain of his wounds. All he felt was shame. I die in battle as every Antarian warrior should, yet I know, Barakton, god of war, he who rests on a bed of thorns will not welcome me, for I have dishonored myself. If this was all, I could die in peace, but the choice I made two years ago dishonored all those under my command. As his consciousness began to fade, he made a silent plea. I wish I could turn back time, not to save my people, not to keep my honor, but so the warriors under my command could rest by Borokton's side. Warlord Khan was awoken by his aid. Sire, the council awaits you. Warlord Khan blinked his confusion. His aid and all the sun calm were standing in front of him. Take me to the council. During the long walk to the meeting room, Warlord Khan tried to get his thoughts in order. This is impossible. This makes no sense whatsoever. There has to be some reasonable explanation, right? Warlord Khan sat in front of the council and was presented with the dilemma. A small human mining colony was in the way of the Klapras army. Honor dictates that they should divert forces to evacuate the civilians. The problem was that the war with the Clorpress was not going well, and to send warriors to cover the evacuation would leave Corinterian worlds undermanned. Last time I made a pragmatic choice, and the human colonists were slaughtered, their armies too preoccupied fighting each other over some crystal-rich system. Their retaliation was brutal, however, and the campaign they waged against the Clorpress gave us a year to prepare our forces— not that it changed anything. He remembered painfully how many dying soldiers refused their last rites after this event. No one ever said anything or acted differently with me. They followed their orders, even if it broke them. The council members stared at the warlord for what seemed like an eternity. After being told of the problem, he had closed his eyes without saying a word. The Emperor's shadow was going to ask a question. When Warlord Calm opened his eyes again, he was grinning. We have to save those stupid hairless apes! Honor demands it! All members of the council nodded and chorused, Honor demands it! Warlord Calm was looking over the battle plans for the defense of Ateria Prime. I have less troops than last time, and I will be facing nearly double the number of Clorpress, and yet I couldn't be happier. 
As he was preparing to make Glorpris pay for every inch of his planet, his aide burst into his office. Sire, you have to look at the state net. Borlord Khan didn't bother to look up from his plans. Sorry, son, I have lost stand to prepare. I'm thinking of wearing my green armor, the one your mother loves so much. Khan's son was lost and a little frightened by the change to his father's demeanor. Before the council meeting, he had been stoic, his face a mask of grim resolve. But now... Now he was smiling while preparing battle formations. He insisted on drawing with uh, finger paint. Nonetheless, he put his data pad in front of his father and played the video. An Antarian warrior, covered in wounds, armed with a rifle, was holding a makeshift barricade as his fellow warriors died in droves to afford the human civilians the time to flee. The human, filming the scene, moved closer and asked the warrior, why are you doing this for us? The strong protect the weak. Honor demands it. We are death wilters. We are not weak. The warrior stopped shooting long enough to look into the camera. Your warriors do not defend you, and your governments abandon you. You are the weakest of the weak. The camera shook as the man filming was dragged into the shuttle. The angle shifted, and the young man, tears in his eyes, looked into the camera. The weakest of the weak. Warlord Khan nodded. A fine Antarian warrior. I am glad that he died doing his duty. He returned to make plans, but was stopped when his son refused to remove the data pad in front of him. There's more. Before he could explain, a soldier ran to his office. Sir, her fleet has dropped into orbit. This is too soon. We should be a few more days. I don't even remember where I left my green armor. Prepare for orbital bombardment. Move the troops to the bunkers and... Kamsan put a data pad in front of his eyes again. A bald, uniformed human was talking. Today, Antarians have taught us a sobering lesson. And it was unanimously voted that such a fine people should not be allowed to be destroyed. Warlord Khan's large communication screen lit up with a priority message. The same bald, uniformed man was there. Yes, I am Admiral Francis with the Third Fleet of the Terran Alliance. We are here to help the Interians defend their worlds. Seriously? The Admiral nodded. Uh, okay. I will land in thirty minutes to prepare the counteroffensive. Warlord Khan was confused, unable to process what had just happened, and then he laughed until he couldn't breathe. Admiral Francis was on the bridge of his flagship, the reasonable response, and looked at his first officer quizzically. Am I insane, or did that warlord have blue and red paint dripping from his claws? After humanity joined the fray, the flow of war shifted overnight. The extra troops, the firepower, the knowledge Warlord Khan had from years of battling the Clorpris allowed them an easy victory. After the war, the humans created the Red Blue Claw, a military fleet unaffiliated with any major human power, but financed by all. Whenever a war front moved anywhere near a human settlement, it showed up and broadcast in all frequencies a simple message. Humanity is not weak. No one who's tried to put this to the test has lived to regret it. As for Warlord Khan, he did something no warlord has ever done. He relinquished his rank, 
He taught military strategy and combat at the newly created Arterian Academy, a concept borrowed from the humans. As his health declined, all those who knew him asked, begged him to take up arms one last time, to die in battle, even if it has to be at the hands of pirates or some other lowlifes. The emperor himself offered to give him his rank back, but he refused every time. And now he was on his deathbed. His friends and family had gathered for the occasion as had many of the ten junior officers he had served with. He was given a powerful stimulant so that he could recite the prayer to Baruchton, so his soul may be welcomed by the god of war. Baruchton, god of war, he who rests on a bed of thorns. Calm stopped and looked at the faces around him. No, this is good enough. Brockton, god of war, he who rests on a bed of thorns. Calm closed his eyes. Thank you. Thus Calm, the glorious, the man who saved his people from annihilation and led them to victory, died without honor, having refused his last rites, with a smile on his face. End of story. Story number two. Survival of the Good Enoughest, written by Whiskey Lullaby. Ever since humanity entered the galactic stage, we've been making waves. Every species on the council was fascinated by our technological evolution and how it defied the norms of the galaxy. You see, other species have never really thought about standardized paths or connections. Much of their shipbuilding capacity is run by what I can only describe as guilds. Each ship was a masterwork only able to be repaired, refitted, or upgraded by a specific guild workshop. We made a mess of that. Our ships couldn't compete on a one-to-one footing, not at first, especially with the laws restricting tech that we could have access to so that we could uh, make our own path and other such nonsense. However, our ships were comparatively cheaper, much easier to repair, refit, and retrofit, for example, the Akiri craft outmatches us in speed and agility, but it is expensive to maintain as you must have an Akiri guildsman to look over the craft and fix it, which often means cracking and replacing the polymer shell of the craft. Human ships had only 55% of their speed, but for the same price as a repair on an Akiri craft, you could get four new ships made of common, resilient alloys like steel and tungsten, with simple ceramic heat sinks, all of which could be repaired within a week due to the fact that every ship was made so that entire sections were detachable and replaced with a functioning section. And the part they got the guilds fuming, all of this could be done not by a master shipbuilders or guildsmen, but by ordinary tradesmen of any race with access to relatively simple tools. While, yes, those tradesmen still needed some trading, it wasn't a lifetime of schooling under masters just to become the equivalent of interns for most of a decade. You didn't need to be an engineer to fix or modify human ships. You just needed an average of two to four year course on a vocational school, much of which was spent familiarizing the students with tools, safety regulations, and how to figure out what an issue was and how to get to it. 
And usually, the engineers that had designed the human ship had already thought of how to get a full-sized human there, let alone the number of smaller species hanging about the galaxy. With this also came the ease of customization. With guild ships, you had to hope you could afford a newer one when yours became obsolete. With human ships, you could replace the reactor and engines with a number of different models. You could enlarge, elongate, or configure the ships how you needed, upgrade individual sections with newer tech, and if the connections had changed since you last bought it, well, a number of companies sold adapters. To this day, there are Gen 1 TerraCore ships in service, something that on Earth would be a museum piece, the equivalent of a trireme amongst steamboats, and you wouldn't even notice under all the new tech that's being crammed onto it. The guilds still exist almost 200 years on, but they've been forced to change. It's slow going, with a lot of the heads of the guilds still disdaining human designs for their inferiority. But most of their members have grown up surrounded by our ideas. A recent poll found that a large number had even said that their first personal craft was human. Hell, even the new supercarrier from the Golsar Shipbuilders Guild recently had an internal scandal when it was discovered that a number of the designers were incorporating Terracore circuits and Samsung hollow devices into the damn thing. What I want you to understand is this. A jack-of-all-trades, a master of none, is still better than a master of one. We may never master the speed of the Akiri, the strength and armor of the Golsor, or even the detection capability of the Siren, but we don't have to. We just have to be good enough at everything that they aren't. San Wu James, CEO of TerraCore, in a broadcast to all TerraCore employees. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1376 Story number one. The Children Without Wings. Written by Skull Bomb Raging. We are those who decide the planet should be spheres and that they should be held together by the force of gravity. There was once five of us. You, Ol, Ki, Ra, and I. Each of us decided that we would make a single world of creatures and see how they developed. I, the meticulous crafter that I am, went to work making my new world. There was a great many creatures I created, all ready to flourish when the universe was finally set in motion. Ra, however, was not meticulous at his designs. He would have trouble with shaping creatures well enough for them to thrive, and he must have held an amount of resentment toward me for it. I had stopped for a short time in order to fix an irregularity that had formed elsewhere in the universe. What I came back to was a disaster. All of my creatures had been plucked, stripped of their abilities to glide on the astral winds. Each creature that is shaped by one of us is formed around a spirit which allows them to interact with a fraction of the power that we had used to shape them. Once that spirit is removed, it cannot be replaced. It would be like attempting to fill a broken vessel with water. No matter how much you pour, it'll only leak out again. Without their spirits, they were all doomed to die of anything and everything, even such mundane things as fire and emptiness. I looked tearfully on at my creatures that would never know the thing that they had lost, the emptiness 
that had been wrought upon them forever. I searched the area for the power that was used to do this and found that of Ra. I didn't hesitate to make this known to the other four, and together we banished him from our universe. The other four offered to allow me to create another world in apology, which I hesitantly accepted. But it didn't matter anymore. All of my motivation to create was gone. I made a number of half-hearted creations, as it was all I could muster. The universe was set into motion, but my excitement wasn't there anymore. Some time passed, my new world had settled into a clunky and poorly devised equilibrium. I watched as they did their dance, completely unable to continue to thrive. I became quite sick of observing the lack of progress, so I decided to see the other corners of the universe. The other three had made wonderful works of art, as they always tended to, each having at least one creature that could leave their planet and explore the cosmos we had laid out for them. Yous had four that ventured to the stars on an eye of a mess of untapped potential. I wondered for a while, seeing what sorts of things our creations were doing. I happened to be near my first world in this universe, so despite my better judgment, I decided to see what had become of it. What I saw confused me. The world had formed completely without the harmony of the other worlds. Even beyond that, the creatures ate each other to temporarily fill that space where their spirit was torn from them. Those creatures fought and died to protect their continued right to exist. One creature in particular caught my eye, using sticks with rocks tied on them to foul beasts multiple times their size. They seemed to call themselves humans. I left for a time, but found myself wanting to know what had happened to the humans, so I returned, and I continued to return. Despite the fact that it could kill them, they harnessed fire, finding ways to keep it from harming them. They made clothes, protecting themselves from the environments which their bodies were no longer designed to resist. Slowly, even though it was the way of this world, the humans began fighting less and less, forming societies that grew larger and larger. The fact that they could not rise from the ground meant that they instead explored downward, allowing them to find better materials to make better tools, and from them even better tools and materials. I thought it was quaint how they lived, though, I thought it would never match up to their faraway cousins that already traveled the stars. One day, though, they accomplished something that changed my view of them forever. The humans created a strange device, and for twelve seconds they rejected the restrictions placed upon them at birth and flew. Unlike the birds whose ancestors had to alter nearly everything about themselves in order to stay aloft, the humans simply refused the notion that their place was to be bound by gravity. I was speechless, even if it wasn't a lot right at that moment. They had accomplished something I never dared to believe was possible for them. I wondered how many more things they could do that I didn't believe 
as possible. Perhaps they would one day meet the creations of you, Ol, and Key. These children without wings. End of story. Story number two. The Smell of Fear, written by the Missing Think. Inspector, thank the deity you're here. The Galaxy General was practically yellow with desperation, or perhaps anxiety. Inspector Gar took his time settling into the offered chair. Partly, he was to give General Flattis a moment to compose himself, and partly because he was by nature very methodical. So, General, why don't you start by telling me why you called me in? It's a nightmare every time we try to get information from only these, uh, Tarads, the interrogator dies. They're taken to the chamber, naked and secured to the chair. The interrogator walks in and five minutes later they die. The Terran doesn't even move. I assume you have a recording of one of these incidents. The inspector asked, of course. He gestured to the wall screen and hit a control on his desk. The video played out as exactly as described. The interrogator walked in, the door was closed, and he started talking with the prisoner. The conversation lasted for about three minutes. Then the interrogator clutched his throat and died. The terror never moved from his chair until the guards came back ten minutes later. Inspector Gar sat in silence, mulling over the evidence. General Flattis started to speak, but was quickly silenced by the inspector holding a single finger in the air. I'll want to speak to the Terran, but first take me to that chamber. Arriving at the interrogation room, the inspector spoke again. I will enter alone, if you please, and close the door behind me. The room was bare. Solid stone floor, plain white walls with no windows and nothing on the ceiling apart from the night, air conditioning grill and video camera. The seat in the middle of the room was made of plain steel and bolted to the floor, arm and leg shackles welded securely in place. Again, Inspector Gar stood in silence for several minutes, his eyes occasionally darting to one of the few fixtures of the room. Eventually, satisfied, he rapped lightly on the door. Speaking to the guard, escorting him, he asked, Where is the Terran now? At this time, he should be in the yard getting his daily exercise, sir. Excellent. Take me to him at once. The exercise yard was a square, twenty meters aside, flanked by high stone walls. Wires between the walls prevented any rescue by air. The ground was bare concrete, broken up by occasional bushes planted in large pots and scattered benches on one of which the Terran was seated. Greetings, human. I am Inspector Gar. May I know your name? Good afternoon, Inspector. Private Second Class Johnson, pleased to meet you. The Inspector took the proffered hand and gripped it briefly before letting go. How are you being treated here? Everything satisfactory? Yes, sir. Uh, my cell is about as big as my entire barracks, and the bed is about as comfortable as any I've slept in. And the food? How is that? Better than we got in the army, if I'm honest, sir. Meat, fruit, vegetables, all the vitamins and fiber my mother could have wished for. Very good. It seems that you're being adequately cared for. 
So I will leave you to your exercise. Good day, Private Johnson. Back in the general's office, Inspector Gar was explaining to Flattis the simple changes to the procedure he should make. All the future interrogations should take place in the exercise yard, or worst case inside the prisoner's cell. Also, as a suggestion, don't call it an interrogation. Maybe just a conversation or a, a welfare check. You'll get far more information that way. I'll also send you an updated menu for the prisoners' meals. But how will that help? The general asked, puzzled. Are you familiar with the poison gas hydrogen sulfide and how it is created? The inspector asked instead. It's something to do with organic waste and some uh, specialized bacteria, I believe. But how would the Terran gain access to something like that without us noticing? There is a phrase in Terran literature that you should research. Silent, but deadly. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.